the Ursus Claws! Welcome to episode 121 of the Age of Darkest podcast. Uh, as usual, we have a packed show for you. Maybe today even more packed, considering that we haven't uh, had a chance to record in a little while and there was a lot to talk about. So, um, Darren, in our, uh, in, in I guess, our, our fall of campaigns, which uh, at this rate will probably turn into the winter of campaigns, but what are we going to talk about? Um, well, firstly, never start a campaign in winter, especially if you're invading <laughs> Russia. Um, what, we fo- what we're focusing on today is Thramas. We're going to be looking at the Thramas campaign system and how you can use it, even if you're not fighting in the Thramas system itself, if you just want to use it to represent the, the hellhole that is the Her- Horus Heresy burning down around you. It's so clever. I can't wait to, to chat about this. There's, there's a lot of really fun elements in that, that even if you're not playing a full campaign, there's stuff that you can add into your your regular games to give them give them some extra flavor but before that um we uh, are are absolutely honored to have on the show uh brother steve from uh, the band dominus Knox. we've never actually for an incredibly metal podcast we've never actually talked to a band before but uh if if, uh, for those out there that haven't checked out dominus Knox, uh we played uh, some of their tunes at the end of the last episode and so we're we're we're, we want to talk about a little bit uh the connections between uh the, the, between uh, metal and 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 40k and 30k uh, and how they go together so very well, um, especially uh, compared to other fandoms. So we'll be chatting about that. Um, should be really exciting. After all that, there's more. There's more. We are going to finally be uh, getting going uh, um, um, uh, on Deathfire in, in in Tales of Heresy. So this is going to be this is going to be a packed one. I'm, I'm hoping everybody uh, everybody enjoys it. But before we go into this inte- this immensely packed episode. I keep saying that. Um, something huge just just dropped. As of recording, we're recording this on November 7th. Um, so uh, a few days ago, or like a week ago, the con dropped. This is huge. Yeah, the final member of the fraternity, the final Primarch. Appropriately, because the big joke. The big joke is that the White Scars are always kind of forgotten about. Malkador mentions it at one point. Oh, yeah, I forgot about the con. Well, they stopped forgetting about the con. Finally here. Finally. Wow. Okay. First impressions of the miniature. Well, first impressions. Impressions of the miniature. Top five. Maybe top three. Looks fantastic. Looks gorgeous. Love the stance. Very menacing, but also... um, uh, it, it, very appropriate for the, the 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 kind of character that the con is. Uh, you know, he looks he looks menacing and fast. Tons of detail. Tons. Yeah, of detail. I was going to say it was, it was. It's all the little details that got me. The fact that it's not just Mongolian based, like <laughs> yes, on many things. Yeah. It, there's there's a whole range of East Asian elements attached to that model little details and details we've seen reflected on for example the um legion specific pre-tools and the dreadnoughts as well how we've seen that kind of mold through to the khan's well masterpiece really because it is i would agree with jp i do think it is one of sam's top three what do you think miles you're you're, you're the artist amongst us I, i i think he's absolutely brilliant i i love him to bits um, I've seen criticisms online that he's not dynamic, that uh, he's quite uh, chunky, 
uh, in comparison to when, uh, like, you put him next to Angron or when you put him next to even like Sanguinius, who are quite light and fey, uh, and that his uh, face needs to be more. Uh, I, I, I've seen things like uh, he needs to be more like Ming the Merciless. But I really like the design choices. Like Darren said, like they haven't gone down that stereotypical route. The 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 pose, love, like open, bare-chested, uh, so you can see a lot of detail of the miniature. Uh, he has his feet planted on the ground, very heroic, dripping with detail. Um, it's difficult to place it because oh, top five, Horus, Sanguinius, Ferris. I, I'm, I'm a big lover of the Ferris called Vulcan. Magnus. Ah, maybe, maybe a Khan, yeah, sneaks in. Number five. Which is appropriate because that's the Legion number, right? That's correct. Um, five, okay. I love the stance. I, 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 I love uh, that the, the, looks like he obviously just drew his, his saber, um, mm-hmm. his weapon, and, and he's got like, it's, it's a wonderfully like, uh, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's sort of, uh, you have the impression that he's gonna, you know, he's in his in his fighting stance, or he's about ready to go to his fighting stance. And if you approach him, you're gonna get cut in half immediately, right? But he's got that um, that calm, that calmness that I think is a part of 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 the con. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, because he's always described as being the center of the storm. Yeah, there's something. Uh, yeah, I, I I just think that it's a it's a wonderful sculpt, and and oh, most yeah, definitely absolutely. one of the best ones they have. Absolutely. But I also think. For me, when we when we were watching the stream, I was watching it with my usual game group. We were watching it remotely, and a lot of us commented on the paint job, as especially the white armor. I mean, Miles, yes. you're you're the painter, but <laughs> from my uh, untutored barbaric <laughs> style of painting, <laughs> the white is gorgeous, and the other details like the gold epaulets and uh, yeah, um, the lamina, white is um, yeah, yeah but, white is so hard to get right. But what the artist has done is sort of like grounding in warmer tones. So it gives an earthier impression, almost like a pearlescent, which trades off really well against the reds and the, and the yeah. The, the, it's a very nicely painted miniature as well. Yeah, agreed. We've talked about this before, and we, we, we've never on this show criticised the, the painting styles. We have mentioned that the painting styles have changed over time. Mm. But for, for me, and it, it's interesting that some of my gaming group are, who are not heresy gamers commented it really felt and really looks like the older style forger of paint jobs rather than the more modern heavy metal styles. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, the the face is very much an heavier metal style, but yeah, the rest of it. Uh, so it's one of those little secrets when it comes to Primark miniatures is that if you paint them neatly, you, you look like an amazing painter because the, uh, so something I tell my students, so the less detail, the worse the sculpt is, the harder you have to work as an artist uh, to, to embellish it, to add details. So when you look at a image, you go, wow, look at that effect you managed to put on there. The con, you just need to paint neatly. And I dare say you can even paint it with just contrast paints. And as long as it's neat, it will look freaking amazing because the sculpt is so good. And you find that a lot with, sam's work you just need to paint them neatly and the 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 sculpt does the work for you so and as we said it's the last for primarks so what do we think might come next come on conspiracy theory hats on we'll we'll come a bit 
possibly a bit Emperor, of wish listing. Emperor and Malkadol. Yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping for myself. Yeah. No, this so is the last like Primark. Runs, because, runs it off. There's still there's still another Primark model to come. Ah, he didn't ask that though. He asked what comes next. Oh, uh, okay. Because there is another Primark to, model to come. Is the the con on his bike, which I was disappointed wasn't this oh, one. Oh yes, J- January February apparently is coming out. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. I I didn't realize we had that information. Is it out there or is there a rumor? I'm not sure. I would I know like that the con's coming out in January, early next year, January February. I'm not. It, it might be a rumor. I'm not sure. But yeah, I've, I've, that, that's what I've heard. That jet bike is coming. Because Emperor Melkador might be interesting. I, I'm sure they'll do it. Why, why the hell not? That would look fantastic. And, I, and I'm thinking some updated uh, some updated Demon Primarchs or late Heresy Primarchs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess you don't need to do Angron or Magnus or uh, Mortarian because they already have plastic models. And they I mean, you can even do vignettes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'd love to see vignettes. So uh, Gilliman squaring off against Angron during the Sh- Shadow Crusade uh, mid-Heresy Horus. Let's face it. We all want the Emperor versus Horus, don't we? Oh, that'll yes. it'll come. That's inevitable. There's no well, way. Well, you could also. I mean, the advantage for that one is you could also throw Sanguinius into that as well, couldn't you? Yeah, dead Sanguinius. Yeah, I, you'd need that. Or Sanguinius being, no. being stabbed by the Emperor. No, no, no. You know, you, you know what it's going to be. I, I, I'm telling you right now what they're going to do because they would be insane not to. But have um, the, um, uh, the the Emperor and Horus duel, but essentially the old Mike McVeigh thing, but like updated, that will be the base and you'll have Sanguinius dead in the back, like on the Mike McVeigh uh, diorama. I, I just want to see the Adrian Smith artwork as fully realized as possible. Yep. Well, that's yes. what, that's what Mike McVeigh did. <laughs> uh, no, he did it from an early. Oh no. Yes. You're right. It was Sorry. that one. Sorry. Was, yeah. yeah I, I'm thinking of the Mark two Adrian Smith artwork, the colorized version. Yeah. The, oh. the original, the original black and white. Version yes. With, with, with the Terminator. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and Horus has got Horus. two lightning claws. Um, yeah. The Emperor's got yes. the Emperor's got the very much traditional Terminator plate, which is unusual because most of the other artwork shows mm. him in power armor, that golden armor. Yeah. So, so yeah, but I mean, we'll we'll have to wait and see. We'll have. A, I would be very surprised if we don't get an Emperor sculpt. Same. Yeah, and I'd be devastated if Sam didn't get the chance to do it. Well, you could actually technically have two, couldn't you? you? You could have the Emperor at the Siege and you could have the Emperor at the end of the Siege on the Golden Throne. That'd be a great model, though. You, you, you oh, joke, but that would yeah, be a great go- model. No, no, yeah, I, I, am being, I am being partly serious. Yeah, I think having him on the Golden Throne would be quite interesting. It's just that, that uh, yeah. but the, the problem is that's, that's no longer a gaming piece and they don't make, they don't, they don't make dioramas like that. They, they just don't. Like, mm. Unless, can you think of one? The only one I can think of is uh, the, uh, the the first Marnius Calgar sitting on the chair. I mean, the closest like thing we've seen not, since 89. the uh, martyrdom of St. Catherine from the Sisters of Battle range. Uh, that, that's pretty much a vignette. And uh, there's something from AOS, like a Krakatos uh, from the Undead Skeleton range. But is that meant to be like terrain or something like that? No, no, it's it's uh, a miniature, but it's sort of like a vignette at the same time. Oh, okay. Who says it has to be a gaming piece? Games Workshop, uh, yeah, exactly. Games Workshop doesn't yeah, Games produce Workshop, non-gaming yeah. pieces. Um, they, they, they did do a few busts and uh, a, a giant um, Space Marine model. Like a 12 inch. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know. I, 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 I think I'd buy one. Everybody, I, I think most, most of us would buy one just to paint. 
can get around painting. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I don't see it, but I, I do think that they'll, they'll do an emperor model uh, just because it'd be fun. And it'd be a great way to like, you know, like um, not end this series, but like close things off. Is he going to get rules? Like, what, yeah. what would the rules for the emperor look like? You get all the Apparently. psychic powers and like a thousand fucking like uh, um, a, a dice. So a chatting with the news at the last uh, uh, event, uh, I think it was like a Warhammer world event. Uh, they were kicking around ideas that he'd have a basic human stat line, but he'd be buffed by psychic powers and passive powers. That'd be cool. Yeah. I mean, though, that, that's just a very early idea they were kicking around. So it inevitably it will change. By the time we do see rules from him, yeah, I can see us. I, I can see rules for him. Yeah, because it, it makes it would make sense because you want to have like who doesn't want to play that duel? And if you're gonna make late heresy a Horus that's powerful enough to to fight the emperor and almost win, you 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 know like, and I'm sure they will. They'll, they'll have an updated fucking super like powered up like level fucking ninety nine. Horus, <laughs> super Saiyan Horus. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, why not? Like it'll be fun. It'll be. He'll cost fifteen hundred points. It'll be whatever. He'll cost as much as a fucking Warlord Titan, and probably can defeat it easily. Yeah. I mean, how many Warlord Titans of Sanguinius killed? A lot. Yeah, because he hasn't had a proper fight yet. I guess I am including Commander in that. But anyways, uh, the Khan model looks. Fucking fantastic! Um, yeah, uh, it's it's triumph. Oh, it's a triumph! Absolutely, it's a triumph! It's wonderful, and and it just makes you. For so long, we're complaining about like nothing was happening, and now things are happening, and it's just it, it's too it, much is happening. We've had yeah. Imperial Fist Praetors, Ultimate yeah. Praetors, Remus yeah. Ventanus. We've had the uh, Sons of Horus Praetor being released. Uh, we've uh, <laughs> we've just had so much come out. Campaigns dropping. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is all leading to something. And we'll see if that something drops before or after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else we should talk about uh, in the intro? No. No, I think that's it. That's good. All right. So, yeah, it's a good intro. All right. Uh, then we'll be right back for our interview with Brother Steve from Dominus Knox. And uh, to play us in, I'm going to put on something that won't surprise anybody. Uh, this is the song. Uh, 12 Betrayer from the album Allegiance 1.
All right, welcome back. Today, we are absolutely delighted uh, to have as a special guest, Brother Steve from uh, Dominus Knox. Thanks, JP. Happy to be here. Uh, so first of all, before we actually go into the discussion about, because uh, this is the first time we've actually had, I guess, a musical guest on, like as someone to talk about something a little bit different. Usually we do uh, uh, more book reviews and stuff like that. So like this is mm-hmm. really different, really cool. Um, so first of all, um, uh, how did this, how did Dominus Knox uh, come together? Well, I'll take a little bit of credit for that because um, it was originally my idea, but Dominus Knox came out of a previous band, a previous project, which um, again, standard death metal rap sheet. There was one band that imploded and from that came <laughs> a new band. Um, but Dominus Knox um, was kind of just a brainchild of mine. When I was in um, playing in other bands, I was always writing my own music. And when I was writing my own music, I was always writing lyrics because I'm a lyricist. So, uh, though I mean that that's there's some debate whether I'm a lyricist or not. But the point being, uh, I was was writing lyrics for my songs, and I was always um, kind of searching for something to write about because uh, I never felt like a person who whose opinion on what was going on in the world would have very much impact, or that just didn't feel like it didn't. I wasn't pulled in any one direction to like write about politics or write about how much religion is awful or whatever, but um, as many metal musicians are. So I just wrote about my favorite thing, which is Warhammer 40,000. Um, and so what became my guiding, my guiding kind of principles, I was going to write a song for each of the original 18 legions. Um, and when a previous project exploded, I grabbed the guitar player and the drummer from that and said hey guys all right this project's done i've been working on this let's do it let's call it dominus knox um and luckily they took a chance on me which was great i mean they took a chance on this idea because um i'm like the big 40k guy in dnox though at this point everybody uh is you know hooked in to some extent or other um but that's the i don't want to put too much uh on me because it was like my little thing that blossomed into something much bigger. Cause now Dom Snox is not, it's not just me at all. It's myself. It's brother Lovejoy. It's brother Manuel. It's brother Phelan. Um, and we write very collaboratively and what we sound like now is based on the unique perspectives and attitudes and skills of all four members. But if I was to take one, take credit for one element, uh, that is maybe kind of the boilerplate, the on the face of it element <laughs> that is Dominus Knox, it would be, uh, Warhammer. So that's a rambling answer for you to tell you something about how Dominus Knox came about. I like that you uh, you call uh, uh, the idea of um, of being a lyricist uh, and um, uh, um, uh, I, I was checking out uh, your Facebook page and uh, you you put on the uh, I guess the the lyric video for Galver back. And there's some dude chimed in. It's just like, yeah, that's pretty good metal, but like none of your words make sense. <laughs> I, I know exactly what you mean. I was laughing. Oh, I was laughing. Comment sections. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, no, so it's just funny. It's like read first heretic. Um, <laughs> that's but, yeah. <laughs> With it, bro. That's air. It's 80, the ADB classic. Exactly. It's, um, is that one of your favorites? What, 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 first what are your heretic- favorite black library books? Oh boy. Um, okay. So my favorite black library books, um, that, I mean, first heritage is certainly one of them. I mean, ADB's Horace heresy work is, uh, pretty unimpeachable. I'm one of those guys. I mean, I know there's certain camps in the fandom is, but like ADB 
Abnet um, and uh, Chris Rate for me are the Holy Trinity, um, but uh, followed closely by several others. Um, but so I think First Heretics an excellent one, like make you actually care about what Lorgar was thinking, and uh, ADB's Night Lords trilogy from 40k oh, fucking fantastic is, books i mean there's you know they're well they're you know celebrated for a very good reason um and i think the reason i'm so into 30k now is because i care about the night lords because of those books and so because i care about the night lords i want to know how they were doing before and yada 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 um but i mean there's I've read, uh no surprises here but i've read many 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 40k books um i mean i've read the entire heresy series up to this point including i just finished warhawk did you get the special edition i did not get the special I got, edition. Yeah. Mm. I, I i've had the special editions up until now i got screwed with warhawk so i'm, I'm trying to debate whether or not i'm gonna I'm hoping someday i'm hoping someday i'll be rich mm. and some guy will put up the full set on ebay and i'll it, and the money won't matter and i'll be like yes those are all mine now so you know i hope to win the lottery someday too yeah, they're they're as soon as uh, the because they go on sale in, in every country. So as soon as the, uh, the the Canada ones uh, were out of stock, I immediately went out on eBay to see uh, what Warhawk would cost, um, <laughs> like five hundred pounds. It's like, well, I don't have that. So <laughs> at the end of the day, it is still just a book. Exactly. You know, like life goes on. Um, but you play you play the game as well. Yes. Um, so I have been in the hobby since I was eleven. Um, and, uh, <laughs> that it started for me, uh, I was at football practice, American football practice, um, and getting my pads on and my buddy, Matt Tondro had a Citadel miniatures pamphlet of some description. It was like, basically it was just a marketing flyer and, uh, it had just pictures of miniatures in it and it was just sitting in his, in his like sports bag for some reason. And I was like, what's that? And I opened it up and I'm like, can I take this home? And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so I like took that home and leafed through it. And it was literally just a catalog. It's like an eight page catalog that had some. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. Um, and I just like, I just looked at that like for an entire evening. Anyway, long story short, I'm like, you know, 7K deep in Iron Warriors at this point um, and several thousand points. I'm only going to talk about points and not dollars of, um, <laughs> of various, various other armies. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it's funny because I started playing guitar when I was 12 and I started playing Warhammer when I was 11. So they are uh, quite intertwined, I suppose, in, in how I came up. I'm delighted that uh, that, that, that your uh, fellow uh, uh, um, uh, Iron Warriors uh, player, mm. um, I've got a couple thousand points myself mm-hmm. again. Um, my wife might be listening at the door, so uh, yeah. let's not talk about how much that costs. <laughs> Just it's just points, baby. It's just points. Just it's points. like uh, like five thousand points, not that much, you yeah, know. Yeah. It's like, well, how 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 much could that cost? Ten dollars? It's sure. fine. Uh, <laughs> why Iron Warriors? Um, uh, me, it was I I I didn't know what Legion to go because I've I've been playing Imperial Guards since I was a kid. I still have um hundreds of old Metal Valhallans. That that's my main army. It's always has been. Bless um, you. And and uh, now I pl- now I use them as militia, uh, but like when I read Angel Exterminatus, uh, like it, it can, Grant McNeil's work on Angel Exterminatus completely changed the way that I, I viewed the legions. For once, I was like, this is these are my guys. Mm. Um, I do. I mean, I think the opening scenes with Kruger and 
Perturabo in Angel Exterminatus are um, wonderful. And also, I'm just picturing that uh, insane carnival parade that Fulgrim does as he yes! on the planet. Um, <laughs> also, the work the work for for Fulgrim in that moment really that 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 took me quite into some interesting places in my heart. But um, the, the reason uh, Iron Warriors, I mean, it's actually a hard question to answer because I when my buddy and I decided to really go into the heresy on the miniatures end, we spent like two months trying to figure out what Legion to play. And at one point during that whole process, we had both said we would be any of the 18 legions. Like right before Iron Warriors, it was going to be Ultramarines um, for me. And then I was like, but ah, but World Eaters, but if you're like, just like a lot of people, I'm sure. Um, Cause I literally love all of them. There's something to love about all of them, but the Iron Warriors, what really got me was um, firstly, I just love uh, the dour and grim and determined nature of them um i love perturabo as a broken a broken idealist and who's just become embittered and petulant because of it um that that's just something that uh, resonates with me for some reason um and actually on um a different note game wise i always play close combat armies like orcs are like one of my first and truest loves and so playing an army that's known for big guns and artillery and stuff just seemed like a nice change of pace a change of pace that now is like my main thing that i've been with for like i don't even know how long eight years now um but uh so for all those reasons but the iron warriors um are in the randan xenocides um oh no that was the dark angels anyway that was dark angels up there that was dark angels yeah sorry um Oh, no, they're the crude. You're, th- you're thinking about the crude. That was, that was the, especially um, the, oh yeah, the crude. I say crud. The crude. From the uh, south border, we say crud. <laughs> hey, the crud down here. Um, but it actually, oh, that, oh, what what book was recent? There was recently, oh, I just read um, a couple months ago, I read Perturabo's, uh, like the his Primark novel and um, the scenes of them fighting the crud and how desperate and, and awful that was is, uh, Woo, there, that's there, some good grim dark. That's there, some good there's shit. some there's darkness in that, and I love Perturabo. I think he's such a tragic character because yeah. uh, he didn't have to go. I mean, he could have gone uh, either way. Um, he gave his word mm-hmm. uh, to Horus, and his word is as unbreakable as iron, right? right. Um, although iron is quite breakable, but anyways, um, uh, there, there, there's don't tell there, him. There's there's a great uh, interview years and years ago. I don't remember what podcast it was when I was uh, years ago. I was working like nights, and and I was like listening um, um, to a lot of podcasts. And there's a great interview with Graham McNeil. I think it was on the Overlords, um, and and um, uh, uh, Graham McNeil made this fascinating point about Perturabo that uh, Perturabo could uh, like he, even late in the Heresy. Remember, he doesn't become a demon prince until after the Heresy. Yep. Uh, at the Iron Cage, uh, he could have gone either way. And he, uh, Graham McNeil was envisioning a scene where Magnus goes to see Graham McNeil because Magnus is everybody's best friend. And he goes, goes uh, to see Perturabo and says, it's not too late for you. It's too late for me. It's too late for most of us, but it's not too late for you. I think that's something really poignant that I don't think they really develop. But Perturabo is such a, a dark and, and, and very poignant character, very tragic character. Yes, uh, I very much agree. And I mean, that's... I like the fact that he's like so unbreakable in that like he's there to do the job especially in the siege uh up until yeah. i mean i feel like they've done my boy dirty a little bit in the siege um 
we're, we're all on team Perturabo here. Like, okay. yeah. uh, it's, 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 it, it, that, that's, that's completely fair. I mean, no spoilers, but you know, con <laughs> the con got some good, some good stuff. If you want my opinion from that Warhawk book, some good, some good things yeah. happened for the old con in there. How do you um, like it? Okay. never mind. But you know what? Like the, the con <sighs> I'm a big white, the, 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 the white scars deserve some screen time. I have been, yeah, they, they've been, they've been, they're the constantly. That's a joke. That's actually a running joke in the series. How that people forget about the con. <laughs> they always, well, I mean, everyone forgot about the con. Yeah. I guess that's a running joke in the Horace Heresy to some yeah. level. Exactly. Yeah, well, they, they mentioned the, in Scars um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that, 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 like, everybody forgot about the con. I think Malkador talks about it. Malkador's like, ah, oh, everybody forgot about, like, Jagatai is still here. So it's like, oh yeah, I forgot about fucking Jagatai. Oh yeah, by the way, Jagatai. What's yeah, he gonna still do? A thing. Still, and I'm looking exists. at I'm looking at six on open boxes for Golden Keshig uh, on my desk. That's um, my next not. That's my next army. Anyway, uh, White Scars are by far my favorite Loyalist Legion. Um, mm. They're the only ones that I feel uh, uh, that 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 I feel drawn to because I think they're a little, little bit more interesting. They're a little bit more. Um, one of my favorite parts in the whole series. The whole series is when. Um, uh, 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 Jagged Icon gets a message uh, from the War Master, and it's uh, oh, sorry, he gets a message. I don't remember who, who sent it. He gets a message, and one of your brothers has betrayed the Emperor. Hmm. Gasp! Lehman Russ has attacked Magnus. It's like, oh my god! <laughs> it, it's such a great little like play on on expectations, mm-hmm. uh, almost almost to the extent of I was there when uh, uh, Horace slew the Emperor, kind of thing. Yeah. Like I, I think it's it's beautiful play on like what we expect. Anyways, uh, yes. <laughs> sorry. Well, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Okay, um, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to to talk to you today, uh, and and one of the reasons I'm so excited to to have you on, is because I, I there there is such an interesting link between 40k and 30k, um, and and the metal community, um, and and I, I wanted to talk about that briefly because, well, for for one thing, I don't really get a chance to do so very much. Sure. Um, but I think that there is uh, something really interesting going on. What, what, what do you think it is about uh, uh, 40K uh, and 30K? Uh, uh, what do you think that makes it such perfect terrain for writing fucking brutal goddamn death metal? Or in your case, like more black and death metal. Like, it's like, <laughs> like, like there's a little bit of black in there, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're very much a blackened. A blackened outfit. Our our new thing is blackened death and roll. We'll see. <laughs> um, blackened death and roll. Oh, we'll dude, see. I was listening to uh, Perpetual Flame to, like uh, earlier, and I was just like, oh shit, there's some immortal in here. Like I'm mm-hmm. hearing some fucking. Yeah. Uh, we're, de- we're definitely beautiful. We, we lean hard into the black metal territory. Um, I like uh, of the guys in the band. I'm the most into death metal. Um, and I'm like, I like. It's kind of my job to try to inject more death into. <laughs> um, but. Uh, Specifically, like, because I love Bolt Thrower and, and Asphyx and Halo Bullets. and But so to answer your question, um, I think there's like kind of a there's a face value answer to that. Um, and then there's maybe my, what I perceive as being like the a deeper thread. I mean, the face value is like, uh, you know, pe- like death metal, heavy metal deals in extremes and darkness and Warhammer is extreme and dark. And so it's like it's it's speaking to similar impulses in people um and so i think um that's like that's kind of on the on the face of it like obviously that there's there's a certain amount of violence and darkness and grimness and power and 
um, evil, quote unquote, that exists in both, um, or uh, moral ambiguity. Uh, anyway, but um, the and then maybe like the deeper th- on a deeper level, it's like for me, and I think that's something that probably unites a lot of metalheads. I don't want to speak for everybody all the time, but a lot of metalheads find a lot of catharsis in metal it's like an avenue to express intense emotion um darker emotion it's a way it's a way to excise those things or express things in a, in a healthy way in a way that we're like after you listen to a really intense um metal track or go to a death metal show or or f- you kind of have a release and you feel better like you like you've meditated or you've done goddamn yoga or something like you you know you your body and mind feel more in tuned and better because of the catharsis of that music that's putting a pretty pretty fine point on it but that's what it does for me and there's like a similar thing in warhammer i mean not only because it gives you access to like hey here's the worst possible universe you can ever imagine and look how cool (laughs) um but like you know kind of live in that world in a little bit and and try to place yourself there and live out some of those emotions and then also literally the cathartic act of the hobby which is you know the the wonderful little toys that we build and paint and that gives you us another another avenue for i guess meditation on some level but um i don't want to get too much into meditation because i don't really meditate but this is my version of it um talking to you jp that's my that's my version of it um but so i think that's like on some level it's catharsis i guess um that I think is is an important element that maybe connects uh, 40k, 30k, Warhammer, yeah. and um, metal. I, I think that's interesting because there is, um, it, it feels that for a very uh, a very niche uh, hobby, very niche universe, um, I, I, it really does feel like uh, 40k is disproportionate in metal. As opposed to like a, um, a fandoms like Star Trek, I can sure. I can only think of one Star Trek metal band. Um, do you know Klingon guys? <laughs> yeah, the Klingon guys, Stovacore. I think they're. I think that, so. We're in the Pacific Northwest. We're in Portland, Oregon, and I, I'm fairly certain they're. Yes, us. I'm almost certain they're from Portland. Yeah, um, I, f- um, I feel like we were gonna play. Like well, at one point, um, there's a promoter we work with pretty often when we're playing shows, and I think their name came up one time, but um, they're too oh, expensive. Yeah. I mean the the singer. I don't. I think they changed their singer or something. But like the singer used to be missing a hand, and I've always mm. like wanted to believe that he lost it in battle. Sure, using one of those wacky uh, Klingon uh, witch moves. It's, it's called a bat left, Steve. Oh, fair play. It's called a bat left. Bat left. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this moment to act superior and not know things about Star Trek. <laughs> no. Um. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. So there's, the, there's, the, there's the nerd, the hyper nerd, nerd boy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but like I, I, I that, that's the only one I can think of for Star Trek for Star Wars. I mean, there, there is a, there was, there was. I don't think they exist anymore. There was, there was uh, an interesting grind band called uh, Jedi Scum. Um, there is, there is a band called Hoth, who obviously oh! takes their name from Star Wars. I don't know how much, yeah, uh, their lyrical content reflects Star Wars. I know some of it does at least. Hoth is a freaking good band. So yeah, that's a at least want a band there. named after Star Wars. Hoth is pretty killer there's also um i'm just thinking of like fandoms um like one of my favorite black metal bands like gorgoroth gorgoroth is named after something from lord of the rings sure Um, i think i think outside of lord of the rings um there's 
you got you get Lord of the Rings medal. You get yeah. there's then you get some Warhammer. I think Lord of the Rings. I mean, just like in any just like in any time a fantasy conversation is had, Lord of the Rings shadow, overshadows everything um, for a good reason, if you want my opinion. Um, but the but Warhammer, yeah, I think I'm I tend to agree. I mean, in as in as much as um, we are not the only 40k band in. Uh, or Warhammer band, I should say more specifically. We're not the only Warhammer band in Portland. Really? What's yeah. the other one? Uh, they are called Soul Grinder, and they're sort of a, a sweet oh! speed metal outfit. Um, That's a and, good name. And they, yeah, <laughs> I saw that. I like. I met those guys. I was like, Ah, oh, you bastards! That's a good it's name. Perfect. <laughs> You sons of bitches, you get the good name. <laughs> I like our name just fine. But I mean, I think a big part of having a band and naming it is thinking of names you would rather have afterwards. <laughs> um, that's just, you know, that's like anything. Um, but yeah, Soul Grinder, uh, they're, they're great speed metal. They, and they, they put out an album. It's, it's, um, uh, they have songs that are about 40K. Also some fantasy. They got a couple of Beastman tunes. Which Everybody loves awesome. Beastman. Everybody loves the Beastmen. When I almost played Fantasy, when I very nearly played Fantasy, I very nearly played Beastmen, and then I was so close to playing Ogre Kingdoms. And then, but you you see, you you can still play Beastmen in 30k. Just fucking take the militia list. Sure. I mean, I well, if I ever do that, it'll be to as a meat shield for the Iron Warriors and use that one right of war. But um, you mean when? When? Yes, correct. You're correct. I do have uh, some beast. I I. You're okay. You're right. Yeah. Fine. I won't fight it. This podcast is all about making people spend more money they don't have. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can do it. You know, I have my whole life. 40K doesn't go away. That's my mantra. Especially when I'm introducing new people to the hobby and they feel like, oh, I got so much to do. I'm like, dude, 40K doesn't go away. Take your time. Yeah. Hey, 40K. I've been doing it since I was 11. (laughs) Yeah. Likewise, I think. Yeah. 11 as well, I think. Hey, man. Look at that. It's the perfect time. I mean, that's when that's, you know, between the ages of 11 and 15 is where a lot of the stuff you like kind of enters your brain. Yeah. When you have to decide when you're going to be a cool kid or like the fucking nerdy weird kid, you have mm-hmm. to make that decision. There's no, there's no in between. <laughs> um, I did my best, but eventually that I realized 40 K was the only way. So soul grind is also I, uh, ivory Primark oh. uh, uh, from, from, from Australia. Uh, I recently mm-hmm. discovered another band. It's a stripped down war metal band. It, it sounds like Baneblade. Yeah, Baneblade. Yeah, they <laughs> um like the, yeah, that that just made me so happy. Like like fucking anti-fascist, like yeah. Iron Warrior themed stripped down bl- uh, like uh, war metal. It's like, I'm down, I'm down, I'm good. This that is what checks, I need. That checks multiple of my boxes. Exactly. Uh you also have debauchery, uh, which is like uh they they were um pretty big like that guy lost his job because of his love of corn like who the hell loses their job because they love corn so much i guy couldn't even tell you um and of course just uh what there's voltor. there's a power there's a power well, i mean voltor wrote the, um one warhammer album and yep. i will love them forever for it the war master i guess is debatably has a couple songs in there but uh, well it has the song war master it has yeah, yeah lost no lost domain that's all but um house. yeah I guess, so I guess there's a few, but um, uh, but there's one album that's wall to wall, um, but the there's one power metal band who put out a 40k album. I don't know if all their music is 40k related. Um, I'm forgetting their name. I've seen them live. I saw them on Seventy Thousand Tons of Metal. 
Oh, you went on that? Yeah, I've been I've been three times. Um, and it is uh, very fun. Though now, <laughs> I probably will not go again. Um, but <laughs> in, in the new world. But um, I've always also, wanted to go. But at the same time, I'm like, ah, I don't really want to go. I I, I, I used to go to Maryland Death Fest every year. Sure. That was my thing. That's really. I mean, as as fest experiences go, there is not a more comfortable one than seventy thousand. <laughs> Because you are in uh, all-you-can-eat buffet slash hotel yeah. slash metal fest, and you just sort of wander around. It's going; to, the music is going basically twenty-four-seven. And um, I mean, I think I think anybody with the means should probably go at least once. I don't know how, how it's going to work in the next couple of years, obviously, but um, it's 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 fucking fun. It's fun. I, I'll, I'm not going to tell you it's not fun. I did it three times. I think three, three times was enough, though. Um, just do just do the right thing, because booze. The only thing you got to pay for is booze, uh, and uh, a Corona is eight dollars. Fosters, which is eight dollars, also, but the the Fosters is uh, twenty four ounces. Uh, so mm. Fosters is is disgusting. But sorry, Australia. But I don't even think the Australians like Fosters. the Australians hate Fosters. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you're welcome. You're welcome, Australia. I mean, you I mean you guys are together. Um, we actually have a few fans in Australia, which is amazing. Um, but uh, we only know when we send like, because we, you know, we have. Wait, did uh, you send a shirt? Did you send a shirt to to Ben when uh, when I discovered your band? The first thing I did is immediately like, um, yeah, uh, uh, messaged Ben from Australia. That's like one of our listeners and shit. He's always sending me new metals. It's like, it's like <laughs> I, I I bother Slanesh shirt. It's just like, good on you, Ben. I love you. <laughs> good on him. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for that. It helped. So we're we're saving up to try to get um, some actual studio time for the next album, which is which will. Uh, we're is excited. it Legions Three? Legions Three. Yeah. So Fuck I mean, yeah. Legions One, Legions Two, Legions Three. The myself and the original other uh, guitar player, um, brother Gary, who who needs to be mentioned because he he is uh, was so much of the soul of the band with me um, before he had he had to leave, which was we're still um, the best of friends, so it's okay. But um, when we we started mapping out how I was actually going to achieve this one song for every Legion um, idea, and uh, so he and I came up with three EPs, which will now end up being two EPs in an album, just by virtue of how life goes. But um, and it was like Legions one, Legions two, Legions three, and once we're done with the eighteen Legions, um, because we're only doing eighteen, because the you know two and eleven are for everyone else. You can write your own songs about <laughs> and eleven. They're for everyone else to imagine. We're yes. going to toe the party line in that way. You imagine the song we might have written about the 11th. It's an opportunity for creativity. That's why that's why those holes are there. Absolutely. Also, and yeah, I mean, because the whole thing is an opportunity creative for creativity. And I just want to, you know, that's but that's a different conversation. I get I get up on my high horse about people getting too dogmatic about the characters of the legions. Um, But that's a different thing. Anyway. um, uh, So, yeah. What was I saying? Legions three is the next thing. It's going to be a full length. And uh, there's probably going to be two Night Lord songs on it. Better late than never. Oh, sweet. Uh, can't get enough. Uh, Night- I'm working on a Night Lords project right now, so I'm super oh, stoked about that. Um, I guess uh, just to come back to, like, I guess the last thing I wanted to, to mention was, um, uh, or, or just to, to, to start to build on what, because, you know, we went into a million different directions because this show has no order. It is, uh, it is total anarchy. I'm right uh, here with you. Like, 
Malalian anarchy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and but I wanted to mention, I was like, there's something about there's so, uh, I want to circle back. There's something about um, this hobby and, and metal, and I really think it was it was baked in from the beginning. Um, I don't think that there is something particular about 40k that makes it metal i think it was metal from the start like it didn't evolve into metal like people didn't just start to decide to like start writing um uh, metal songs based on this 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 universe i think it was just always fucking metal um um i really think that and and and, and i've been thinking about this for days i've been preparing for this interview and it's just like like when did this start it started at the beginning like realm of chaos came in 89 like it, it was at the very fucking beginning that this was uh, the, warhammer records started up at about that same time they signed sabbat um there, there's i i really think it was baked in from the beginning and i don't think you can disentangle the two and this is like the the argument that like I, i'd love your thoughts on this but i think you i don't i don't think you can disentangle them i really think that uh 40k and and, and metal are essentially one in the same they are intertwined since from their very beginning from those fucking cokeheads in like 1987 those long-haired cokeheads that sort of bashed together a bunch of different sci-fi properties properties into <laughs> into one thing that like you know, let's bash let's throw some dune in there let's throw some 2000 ad in there uh that's some that. star wars oh let's throw some star wars in there too um Love that so I've been thinking about this for days and I'd like your <laughs> what do you what do you think I well, I, I think it was there gonna, in the beginning you're, I mean, you're here. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna jump on your back and let me carry it, let you carry me uh, <laughs> with that one. Because actually, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, you, if you look at the aesthetic, um, if you look at the atmosphere, um, it's. I think you're absolutely correct. Um, speaking of speaking of influences, the magazine heavy metal. Um, you know, yeah. let's just Let's just. It's all. It's all in there. Um, the the you know, post-apocalyptic, I mean, Clan Escher is, uh, from Necromunda is uh, the cover of a heavy metal magazine, uh, in gang form, in miniature form. Um, but the, yeah, I think it's these guys, I would love, I would love to know if like, um, you know, Andy Chambers or, uh, who are the, who are the original guys? Oh man. I'm it was, gonna uh, like, uh, uh, well, it was, Alessio Cavort. Uh, Rick Priestley mainly. Rick Priestley. Um, uh, uh, listen um, to metal. They probably did everybody in the eighties. Oh, absolutely. The you look but, at their pictures in the back of uh, rogue trader, the original book. Um, mm-hmm. they, they have like, uh, characters themselves. They all have long hair for sure. Um, so I mean like it is, I guess the, the aesthetic of metal that is, um, you know, so readily available or like the, the one that sticks with people as being heavy metal is like spikes and chains. And <laughs> so um, Goliath then not yeah, Goliath. Well, they also had chains and spikes, but that's true, that's true. big colorful Mohawks. Think about how pointy their high heels are. Um, but Goliath as well, um, spikes and chains on everything. Um, and just that like, um, hyper masculinity, for good or ill, um, almost a character too. It's like yeah. almost a character. I know, but but like uh, to to borrow a phrase, turn everything up to eleven. Yeah, because Warhammer, um, like if it's not, if it's anything, it's it's like absolutely over the top. It's so over the top that it comes back in and like collapses in on itself like a neutron star, um, which is why it's so grim. Because uh, how can something that's inherently be so silly be so grim? And have you heard of black metal? 
<laughs> so that's like I think I think you're I I don't have um much to say except to react to the fact that I think you're absolutely correct and I think it was um it's just one of those things like one of these pop culture things of cross pollinating and these these fellows t- drew a lot from kind of the aggressive cultural elements that they that were surrounding them especially in the UK like heavy metal and punk um and just breathed it into their um over the top sci-fi universe fantasy universe uh and they grew up together in that way and it was only natural that both thrower would uh catch on to it and write wonderful music about it just that as a as a side note like okay let's talk about both for two seconds and i don't want to keep you too long uh we'll, we'll, I'm, we'll, I'm we'll, fine. I'm fine okay um just quick bolter question um sure. when i got into bolter in like the 90s like no one fucking or late i was in high school so like late 90s um no one no one listened to both and now like both is everywhere and i mm. feel like i i feel like a douchebag gatekeeper it's just like what the fuck man how, how dare you just like discover both now how, how dare you like this band which is a shitty attitude but you know what i mean right absolutely like, yeah i mean it's human that's human of you uh, but like when, when did this happen that both uh every single uh crust punk i know Every single fucking metalhead loves Bolthrower. Um, when did this happen? I, did, did I miss something? Well, let's see. I think um, over the past 10 years, a nice revival of all the older styles, like old yeah. school death metal is actually um, sort of in the limelight right now. I think, frankly, I think they their last album, Those Ones Loyal, which that was 2005? Oh yeah, someone yeah, something like that. So um, they wrote that album. They said this is the ultimate bolt throw album. We're never going to record another album. And it was fantastic. It was a great it is, album. It's an incredible album. It's, it is my favorite bolt throw album. It's it's that or it's Well, a, now you just that was my next question, so it is. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, uh cuz <laughs> the element of bolt throw that I really love is when they get really groovy. Yeah. Though when they re-recorded yes. um when they re-recorded World Eater, I I wasn't I wasn't into that. But um even so, when they're really groovy is when I, they what is it who dares wins um uh, when, when they did like a bunch of um i'm going to spotify right now <laughs> it's called it's, also, it's called world eater 2000 i think yes yeah you're right uh there there's there's there i think there's three versions of world eater there's the one on the realm of chaos there's one of the peel sessions i think world eater 94 world eater yes or i think that's on uh, on on who dares wins uh which is like a collection of like a bunch of yep. you know b-sides absolutely that is exactly what it is um but uh anyway so the thing about Boltor, i mean well i think Boltor being um uh one of the original grindcore bands um Boltor kind of having a very like a unique sound um in a genre like Boltor is you know aped by a lot of bands now um i think it's even though like Boltor, i think it's um the thing about both throw that resonates with a lot of people is something that I really look for in music, which is not always what a lot of metalheads are looking for, but like it's very simple, but it grabs you. I think when both throws at its best, it's like these simple, just grooving, like grooving, like hell heavy riffs that just want, make your body want to move and they stick in your mind. And that's like what both are that I think that's, you know, when both are is at its best, which eventually they were at their best, uh, that's what you're getting um but i think that kind of the the sort of bedrock nature of their sound is why they 
have the mass appeal that they do. Um, it's it's groove. All right, I'm just going to say it in one word. It's groove. Is it groove metal? It's not groove metal. <laughs> it's not groove metal. Nothing against the groove metal. You can all wear your wear your uh, actually don't even wear those flags. But nothing against groove metal as a musical art form. But it's just groove as a musical element. <laughs> I remember um, makes people I, that makes people that makes bolt thrower gives bolt thrower the legs that it does, which is why um, if you miss bolt thrower, listen to uh, Memoriam. You'll get a little bit, get a bit of <laughs> flavor, a little bit. You certainly get Carl Memoriam. I, I, I embarrassed great. myself so badly when I met Carl Willis because I thought I thought it was Dave Ingram. <laughs> <laughs> Oopsie! I um, thought because uh, uh, it was like I think it was MDF 2009. Bolt thrower was playing. We drove down. Um, and, and, and I saw, uh, um, a blonde British person, uh, ordering like a bottle of wine at the bar. So it was just like, holy shit, Dave Ingram from Hill of Bullets and Benediction. This is incredible. It's just like, and then I realized right after it's like, oh no, oh, that's extra douchey because, uh, because, because <laughs> he totally replaced fucking Crow Willis and both of was just like, oh, well, I feel like an asshole now, but he was so fucking nice. Yeah, he's the second nicest person I've ever met. Like the metal scene, the, the nicest still like George Grobstrad. No, dude, um, he's a sweetheart. He's so he's so I met, I met George on the boat, and he's uh, the one. The one guy. Oh, so on the lit- boat. Yeah, on the boat. I mean, the thing about the boat is, um, people, the, the bands and the people. There's nowhere for the bands to go, so you're just you're. Oh, in okay. And so you're in amongst friends again, in in as much as I've made my, a fool of myself in front of multiple artists because <laughs> i have no i got no chill if i see someone i, I actually like I, oh, it's not like it's not like a real fangirl it's just that i just turn into like a puddle of mud it's going hey, hey man you cool you cool guy yeah you don't know what to say right it's just like uh, I, I called him mr you're, hey man, you're, real, you're really important to me so you know i'll see you later okay bye I remember he's on the like when I met like uh, uh, Corpse Grinders, like he was on the phone or something. Uh, it was at MDF, uh, one of the MDFs. And I think Ghost was playing, and and everybody like he he'd come down to see Ghost, and it was just I he was on the phone. I literally was like, Mister Corpse Grinder, would it be okay if I take a picture with you? And it's just like, Girl, yeah, no problem, brother. Just give me two seconds. And he, he's super. He's just so fucking nice. He's great. Um, Oh, yeah. One quick, one quick, one more, one more reference to the boat about meeting people is um, this isn't even merely me meeting someone, but we saw Behemoth uh, crush a set in one of the venues on on a on the Passion of the Seas. I forget what the boat's called, but we saw Behemoth play, and then you know Behemoth. It's such a production, such a stage show, such you know such a spectacle. It's it's I, I love Behemoth, but um, afterwards, you know, it's better to not see the artist after that, at least immediately after that. But I'm sitting in the elevator going down to my room, and the elevator stops, opens up, and Nurgle walks in, still in his stage gear. <laughs> and, you know, Nurgle's not a big guy. He's larger life on stage, but he's a small man. And he's, you know, painted up. He's got his stage gear on, which at that time they were doing rocking those big hoods. Uh, and so he has his hood pulled up over his head and he's like holding it. So you can't really see his face much, but he's just sort of standing there in the middle of <laughs> of the elevator. And it's just all these sweaty ass metalheads who are just watching him play and just kind of like breathing and staring at him. And I was just very... I kind of had out of body experiences looking at this. I'm like, this isn't ideal. <laughs> just, I just saw him play, but he's just standing there, and he, no one likes this. So that's. Uh, but what was cool about uh, being, <laughs> you know, like you know the boat, the boat, uh, the boat giveth and the boat taketh away. But um, the one thing I liked about the boat, as far as Behemoth has seen, uh, the bass player Orion, who's a very large man, 
walking around with just a train of people and always someone on his arm, sometimes a lady, sometimes a man, but just like four or five people just in his wake. And he just walk around going, anyway, good man is a Ryan, uh, just surrounded by people. Cause he's a, he's a giant, beautiful <laughs> bass player. Um, anyway, what else do you want to talk about? They're wonderful people. They're wonderful people. Um, you stole my last question, though. My last question was going to be, I just want to throw it at you, like, best both of our album. Uh, those Once Loyal is your favorite. That's that's an interesting, uh, that's a hot take. Yeah. Um, call me call me basic, but I think I think it's, I think it's I definitely think it's a great album. Favorite. I think it's definitely my favorite. Um, I think uh, For Victory is awesome. Mm. Um, I think Fourth Crusade is... Uh, Okay, if I'm going to rank them from faves, I won't give you best, but my top three would be, um, as far as my faves, you, if you think I'm the best, that's fine. If you don't think of the best, that's also fine, you know, because we're all, we're all friends here. But uh, it's those ones loyal. I've already said them, so it's not a big reveal. <laughs> For Victory and Fourth Crusade. And then I like Mercenary, even though it's the same song eight times in a row. So what do you think? I mean, old, I mean, Warmaster and um, Realm of Chaos are great. Um, they're important. But I like it. I already said it. I like the groove. See, like I'm, the, I'm, I'm, like I'm, see, I'm, I'm, I'm a grindcore fan. Number one, like, um, I would put okay. Number one, Fourth Crusade. I think it's their best album. I love Fourth Crusade. It's almost it's borderline perfect as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I would put Realm of Chaos, uh, War Master, and uh, uh, In Battle There Is No Law. Mm -hmm. And I think In Battle There Is No Law doesn't get a lot of love. It's a fucking messed up kind of dirty uh, repulsion like sound, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. They weren't trying to do death metal at the time. And there's a lot of debate in the community whether or not like Bolthrower is a it should be considered a grindcore band. And the, the grind fans love Bolthrower, do not think they should be a grindcore band. Yeah. <laughs> I well, think that's fair. They had one real grindcore album and Realm of Chaos, which is really like maybe invented Death Grind. <laughs> Very well could have. I'll give it to him. I don't know. Like who, who I'm just gonna give I'm gonna give it to him. Yeah. It's done. I've said, I've spoken. You have, they, you have spoken. <laughs> yes, and you can you can look up my qualifications on my uh, bi-weekly newsletter. Uh, <laughs> I, I always put I always put a <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely, why not? But um, who else? Who else could you say? That's that's a that's a fair question, also. I, I don't know, like Marcus? Uh, like the. Uh, the the the, the, the death grind band went, is Dying Fetus, and Dying Fetus only started in like the late nineties. Uh, well, I mean, see, because I would I would call Dying Fetus slam. Oh, they're not slam. Come on, they they have some right. slam bits, but they're death grind. No, am I am I stupid? This, no, I don't think you're stupid. I think this is um one of the fun and difficult things mm. about diving into the subgenres of metal is all <laughs> the overlap. It's so silly. God damn it. Um, I, I remember one time I was, um, I was at uh, Maryland Death Fest and we were t- uh, uh, um, uh, Maryland Death Fest in Baltimore. And, and so you have this like giant, uh, he- like um, uh, extreme metal festival. And right next to it, the convention center was a comic book convention. And we were taking the elevator and it wasn't clear. Like we, we saw some people in like sweatpants and shit, like some giant nerds. It's just like, where are you going? And it's not clear because metal is like the most nerd of yes. all of the musical genres. Absolutely, one hundred percent. It is. That, that's, that's okay. So actually, let's circle back. That's why. 
That's probably the yeah. Probably. Pitch. If you, we it is why Warhammer and Metal the nerdiest. That's why. And bless us. We are blessed to we have seen blessed. the truth. To have seen the truth in all. We've the, heard the word, my friend. It spoke to our hearts, and it is loud, and it is grim, and it is dark. Um, I I promise I wouldn't keep it too long. So, just uh, in conclusion, um, I just wanted to thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Uh, this has been an incredibly fun conversation. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be delighted if you come back sometime. Um, Absolutely. But as as a conclusion, please let our listeners know where they can uh, get your music, where they mm-hmm. can get your merch, where mm-hmm. they can just you know throw some money at you because everybody needs a couple bucks in the bank account to afford special editions of the next Horus Heresy Siege Terra book. Uh, absolutely. Uh, well, thanks, JP. This has been a fun. I'll come back anytime. But, um, you know, look us up on Bandcamp. That's where all our merch is. Dominus Knox, uh, Bandcamp, or w- Bandcamp.com slash Dominus Knox. Hold on, my child is talking to me. Hold on, Fox. Dude, heavy metal all the way. Um, <laughs> the we're, Our music is on every streaming platform you want to find. iTunes, Spotify, uh, YouTube, any, any streaming platform you'll find us. And then we're on Instagram and Facebook, Dominus Knox. Um, and that's about it. Our social media presence is like, you know, fine, but we post occasionally and it's usually fun. But yeah, um, if you want to listen to our music, you can find it on the internet. And uh, if you want to buy a shirt, you can find us on Bandcamp. All this stuff will be in the show notes. And uh, if you need to find it, just send me an email. We'll, we'll sort it out. But thank you so very much, Brother Steve. Peace. Thank you. Thank you, JP. Uh, keep painting, keep playing, and keep listening. Okay, here we go with the Thramus Crusade. Now, this is a really interesting set of campaign rules because normally in a campaign, it's all about building up your resource points, building up a, a structure. Those of you who played like on game, uh, online computer games, StarCraft, for example, uh, it's all about building up your base of operations and making it as massive as possible. Well, as we know, this is 30K. And 30K is not about building things up. 30K is about tearing things down. And uh, I always remember one of the writers at one of the Heresy Weekenders always described the Heresy as fighting in the house which is burning down around you and you're fighting over who gets to keep the shattered ruins. And Thramus Crusade rules really sum this up. They, you start really positively and then things get worse over time. So how it breaks down is you've got a core set of uh, campaign rules. And then, as always, with Forge World, you have lots and lots of optionals that you can bolt on and you can adapt. One of the things we do need to point out as well is, although this is called the Thramus Crusade rules, you could play this in a kind of any kind of star system where it's all about tearing things down around you, that where a star system is taking lots of damage from Starty's War. There are specific rules for playing it in the Thramus system, but those are optional rules as part of the kind of the, the set. If you were used to like the, the book for Conquest rules, which is still the black book, best black book ever written, um, you could use this in conjunction with the two, but it is a standalone set of rules. And also, although it is the Thramus campaign, so you'd expect Night Lords, Dark Angels, Solar Ox, Mechanicum to be taking place, you can play this with any sets of armies. So it can be used as 
kind of a standalone sandbox campaign system by itself. So how do we want to break this down? Do we want to do the core rules and then look at some of the options afterwards? Oh, that sounds good. So, Miles, you, have you had a chance to look through this? I have, but I have a real problem when it comes to rules. They don't translate to me. I, so I've been experiencing this a lot with Necromunda, trying to keep up with the rule sets and trying to translate them in-game. Um, it's been... Well, I've... I've <laughs> had to have them read to me by the eye of horus guys listening to their coverage in necromunda i'm able to visualize it and actually translate these rules from the abstract into real life situations i have read these rules but they just haven't stuck at all so that's why i'm, I'm so interested to go through this section with you guys for you to almost like spoon feed me this stuff and, and tell me how it all works jp what do you think of them what's, what's your kind of initial view on them um I, I think you're right. The, the, the best thing about this, this, this campaign system is it really does a good job. And there's a bunch of good campaign systems uh, throughout the uh, Black Books. Uh, hopefully we can talk about them over the next uh, couple episodes. But uh, we did a, years ago, Mark and I did like, a, I think a three episode series on Crusade, on the Crusade system, which I think is fantastic. But what I think the Thramas campaign system, and again, it doesn't have to be Thramas, right? You can adapt this. But what I like about this campaign system is it really... It really gets to what this kind of warfare leads to, which is a system-wide destruction. Like, I love how it ends when there's, like, the system is completely destroyed. Yeah. Uh, because this is no longer a war for resources. It's no longer a war for territory. This is a war of, of you know, the Clausewitzian <laughs> total war. A war that has lost all political meaning. That's really just about um, uh, it, it's war for war's sake. It's it's it, it, it's so destructive, and and I really like that flavor to this. That every time you win or lose, uh, we'll explain this in a second. But win or lose, you're contributing more to the destruction of the system, <laughs> and eventually yeah. there's just nothing left anymore. I think that's so clever and 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 evocative, and so fucking thirty k. Yeah, absolutely. So how does it work? Right. OK, well, let's let's start with the, the core set of rules and then we'll look at we'll talk about some of the options that you can choose to add in. Um, it's very much kind of a bolt on set, isn't it? It's very much like here's your core set and then all, all these kind of bonus extras and then you can add them on. But the entire premise of the game or the entire premise of the campaign system, you have to, first of all, decide a points level that you're going to play to. And they recommend the, the traditional 3,000 points as a starting point. But one of the optional rules later adjusts that, but I'm going to save that because this that's one of the things I particularly like. And especially at the moment with a potential new uh, additional way can be used as a slow grow as well. But we'll, we'll save that one. So that's your starting point. You pick a 3,000 point army. Now it is up to you as your gamer group, if you want to keep that as one fixed armor list, or if you want to be able to change that armor list between games, that is, that's not fixed at all. And these things shouldn't be fixed anyway. Um, I'm a huge fan of within your gaming group, you should pick what is best for you. So you've picked your army list. What else do we need to think about? There are three, um, or oh, how shall we describe them? Resources really that kind of dictate how the campaign flows. And those are spoils, fealty and ruin so what are spoils well spoils are representing your gains in the campaign they represent the resources you're collecting together 
and you gain a number of spoils equal to the victory points that you achieve in a game. So if, if I was playing JP and I got six victory points, I would have six added to my spoils total for the campaign. And that's whether you win or lose, because that's another nice little element I quite like, is it represents that even if you lose the game, you are still taking things away from that. Yeah, and it makes, it, it makes tight games a little bit more interesting. Especially games that like you know you're gonna lose on turn three. Why why play another two turns? I'm gonna try to get a couple more uh, a couple extra victory points uh, for the sake of the campaign. Yeah, and as we'll see later with some of the optional rules, spoils are important to try to boost your spoil score. You can use them later on. So the next one is fealty, and as we see in the Thramas Crusade. It's not just about campaigning and gaining resources. It's about trying to persuade people to join your side. A major theme of the heresy, trying to persuade planets onto either the Imperium or to Horus for dark compliance. And fealty represents that if you win a game, you gain a point of fealty. So how does this work in game? Well, if you have more fealty than your opponent, so let's say I was playing Miles' uh, Blood Angels, for example, and he had four fealty and I had five, when we come to setting up the game, because I only have more fealty, I can always choose to deploy first or deploy second. Then you can still use the seize the initiative, but it represents the fact that you have more people supporting you, that you have a little bit more for strategic gain over that. So not a massive advantage, although potentially depending on the type of mission, it could be, but it does encourage you to win your game as well as those spoils points. And then finally, we have ruin points and ruin points are really used as the campaign tracker. And we'll mention uh, the end point of the campaign in a few moments. But what ruin points are is at the end of the game, you both add your victory points together. And then that creates a ruin total. And you add those as an ongoing uh, collection of points. So let's say at the end of the game, I've just played against Miles. Uh, he gained six victory points. I gained five victory points. We would add 11 ruin points to the total. So it represents that in those big games where you gain loads and loads of victory points, there's a lot more devastation which I really like. It's a very, very clean mechanic to represent that destruction of the system around you. So, Miles, what, what's your kind of reaction so far? So when you look at uh, 40k, one of the things I'm envious of is this ongoing narrative that you can create. Uh, Crusade system, I think it's called? Yes, yeah. This feels in a very similar vein that, uh, just like JP said, that in-game... Like, even though you might be taking a hammering, you can sort of like write this game off mentally, but think, okay, if I pick up the odd point here and there, it will add to my score at the end. I can lose the battle, but win the war. That's the most fun thing about campaigns is actually yeah. thinking long-term like that. Um, uh, playing like a campaign game where like it becomes, okay, I'm going to try to save my warlord so that he, does, he doesn't wind up. I don't have to roll on that table to see whether or not he lives or dies. Um, it, it just gives you extra like side um, missions that sometimes you don't even think about. Um, or, or sometimes it could just be like bitterness or spite. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to kill this person. Like he, they, they, they've been, they, they've been screwing with me for like three games now. Um, it, um, yeah. uh, campaigns are fantastic for 
um, giving you extra motivation and extra reason to actually uh, play full games, not not get bored halfway through. Because we've all got steamrolled before. Yeah. And it's it's one of the worst things about the hobby when it goes wrong and it goes mm. wrong against you. It's one of the most demoralizing things that no matter what you do, it just escalates worse and worse against you. But with a campaign game, especially if you're playing with multiple people, it's like, okay, I'm going to lose this game. But if I can hold on, like I'm going to lose, but if I can hold on to this building, right, I can help my team um, down the line. Mm-hmm. Or like you build on grudges against characters. It's just like, I'm determined to take down that warlord. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I'm going to lose. I'm, I can't take these objectives. I don't have enough troop choices anymore. Like, it's all happened to us that we've got our troop choice annihilated. We can't take objectives anymore. But I'm going to I'm gonna take this guy's head. Like, yeah. I, I'm going to lose. But, like, this person, uh, you know, like, Fulgrim's going to die. So, one of the things about campaigns is they do have a tendency to drag on. And one of the things, I mean, Miles mentioned Necromunda earlier. One of the things that we've seen a lot from recent GW campaign systems is they design them with a finite point. You mm, have to yeah. get to, a, there's a certain end stage which represents the end of this campaign. And the Thramus system is no different. And they divide it into cunningly short, medium, or long campaigns. Um, and it's all determined by the number of ruin points you create. So if you want to do a short campaign, that's 30 ruin points. Remember, ruin is created by adding all your victory points together from your games. And they reckon a short campaign, a 30 ruin game, is between three to four campaign turns. If you've got more players beyond the two people, you can add 20 ruin points on for that. So, for example, um, if there was a... Framas Crusade between the three of us, there's three of us, so there would be a 50 ruin limit for a short campaign. And that goes all the way up to a long campaign, which is between eight to ten campaign turns, and that's an 80 ruin limit with an additional 40 for each extra player. So what's a campaign turn? Well, they kept it nice and simple, which I appreciate, because, um, Miles, you'll know a campaign turn in Necromunda is really complicated. Yeah, there's a lot of steps to it. You've got to work out your casualties, working out your money, go to the trading post, bloody bloody blah. What I really like about the Thramas campaign turn, it's you play one game, that's it. There's nothing more complicated than that. So everyone plays one game. Now they do say if there's an odd number of people, so for example, the three of us having a campaign, one person may have to play two games, so everyone gets a game. But it is as simple as that. Because we can also see the, the can be ruin points will build up extremely quickly. So if we got, uh, like I mentioned in the game, the theoretical game we had earlier with ele- 11 victory points, well, that's 11 out of the 50 we would be using for that campaign. We're just over a fifth of the way there or, or 20% of the way there already. It's, you know, it's going to happen quite quickly. So... What that means is you could theoretically do this in a weekend. You could get a group of friends together, get go around someone's house and say, right, we're going to do a short Thramas campaign and just blitz it out, running a narrative event. You know, event organisers out there, put your thinking hats on, maybe you could run a Thramas campaign weekend using these rules. It would be very, very achievable to do. Three to four campaign turns, three to four games. Well, that's either a one-day event or a tour if you want to do it like that. So there we go. It's as complicated as that for the basic, basic games. And that's it. 
everything after this is just optional rules. I'll so say optional, but you lose you lose a lot you lose a lot of flavor yeah, if you don't use them. Absolutely. Um, and as always with any of these kind kind of games, the more of the optional rules you add on, the more complicated it goes, but also the more depth it goes into. So Miles, you say you're not a rules guy. Um, what's kind of your reaction to the basic campaign rules? One thing I love, just flicking through this. Um, so, so when I'm reading other campaign systems, I can become a little bit confused over exactly how big of a campaign I'm, I'm planning or, or participating in. It's broken down. It, it's idiot-proof for me, which is perfect. Short campaigns, this is our suggestion. Medium, long campaigns. So you you have that authorial voice and you even have designers' notes alongside it, sort of supporting you as well. Um, and we all know what it's like. We, we, the campaign master, they have these big grand designs and they have bolt-on rules and they come up with this ingenious, complex system that none of the players read. None of the players uh, put, uh, like use it because we're all busy. We all have jobs. So having this clean simple system to use it, it it's it makes it more encouraging to participate in this sort of system rather so necromunda it does feel like you need to know you need to be quite savvy uh know what alliances that you can broker with your gang the benefits it gives you in between games the hangers on that can support your gang uh whether you want to uh participate in like a, a, a illegal uh going on uh, like illegal weapon runs there's quite a lot of information there to to invest in, which not everybody has the time to do so. With this, clean, simple, you can explain it in five minutes before the campaign begins, and boom, you're straight into it. So yeah, the the, the clarity, the simplicity, but that ongoing narrative is uh, it is very much appreciated from somebody with very little time. Yeah, and I think even when we start looking at the optional rules, which we'll do in a moment, they still don't overcomplicate it. They just take a bit of the, the, the core rules and just expand on it slightly. At, at no point does this get as complicated as Necromunda, for example. And it but shouldn't, yeah, no because they're, they're, no. they're two completely different systems. And they shouldn't be as complicated as, um, as each other, or one shouldn't be. They both shouldn't be of an equal level of complexity. So when we talk about the optional rules... They really kind of break down into three key areas. So that's grand stratagems, tactical advantages, and warlord and named or famed character casualties. Um, and these use the points you you've, you're creating, the filthy points, the spoils points. The ruin points don't change with the optional rules. They still carry on building up in the background. So let's start with grand stratagems um, and how we use them. So this is where you get to use your spoils score. And remember, a spoil score represents those resources that you're collecting. And you get one spoils point for every victory point you gain, whether you win or you lose. Now, the way this works is these um, grand stratagems, they cost a variable amount of spoils points. And you can choose how many you put in. But... If you achieve your grand stratagem, then you gain double those amounts of spoils points back. So if you only invest one, spoil, one spoils point, you get two back. If you put five in, you get 10 back. But some of these are quite complicated. And what these represent, the grand stratagems, is kind of 
the big overarching strategy that your legion or your exploratory fleet is going to take for that campaign turn. And remember, we said a campaign turn is just a single game you play. So it's literally what are you going to do in the next camp or what are you going to do in the next game you play? However, remember what we said earlier. If there's an unbalanced number of players, you may be playing two games. So it may actually take place over two different games, but it's really only designed for a single game. So, JP, if I do the first one and then take it in turns. Sounds good. Yeah. So the first one is the serpent's head. And what it focuses on is the elimination of the enemy's command structure. And the idea behind that is if you cut off a head, the body will die. So, like we said, for every spoils point you invest in this grand stratagem, you'll get twice the amount back. But to achieve it, you have to destroy the enemy warlord before the end of the game. So not that bad, actually. Uh, unless you're going to slay the warlord. Like, yeah, effectively. So yeah, so if you slay the warlord, you're going to get a victory point anyway. So you're already gaining more spoils points by achieving this, and then you're getting double the amount you invested. Um, it's just a little bit more challenging if your opponent's got something like a um, Primark. There's a, de- there's a detail I don't think you touched on, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but these are secret. Yes. Yeah, they are secret um, as well. So uh, the way that it's, uh, it's supposed to be structured... Um, Normally, to make this campaign work uh, function properly, you're supposed to have like a campaign master, as um, uh, as Miles said. Someone should be in charge. If not, you could probably write it down on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, like put it aside, that kind of thing. Yeah. But these are secret. So you shouldn't know that every single army on your side, um, on the opponent's side, is is trying to kill the warlord. So there's a little bit of bluff in here, right? Because if you realize what the opponent's grand strategy is, uh, you can counter that. Like if you figure out, oh my god, they're going for they're going for uh, Serpent's head. Just hide your warlords all game. We're gonna f- like we'll, we'll screw yeah. them. And the other thing to point out as well is this is done by side. So if you were having like a multiple campaign, uh, multiplayer campaign, the loyalists would choose one of these grand stratagems. The traitors would choose another one. So yeah. it's not done per player. So that you know, there's a bit of discussion, a bit of a. Uh, politicking going on within those groups about which one do they think is best to do for that campaign set. But I, I love this one, uh, Serpent's Head, uh, just because if you can say that everybody succeeds, everybody has to succeed for this to work, for your, uh, for your uh, gamble to work. Say that you, uh, you wager 10 uh, spoils points trying to get, which would win you 20, but everybody on your team, if there's, if there's five people on your team, that means five games. In all of those games, those, you need to get a, uh, uh, um, a Slay the Warlord. But if you do that, that's a lot of points. Yeah. That's solid. Yeah, absolutely. So it's quite it's quite good. It's got the it's a nice challenging one. It's not over it's not impossible, but it's a nice challenge. Do you want to do the second one? Yeah, the second one is hold the line. Hold the line. Um essentially you're trying to conserve forces. Uh and and so you could wager, you know, you could wager in the same manner as 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 the other ones. Wager spoil point and you get double back if if everybody on your team succeeds. And what you're trying to do is make sure that you don't get tabled. That's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's, compulsory it's troops, bit... sorry, compulsory troops. Yeah, you've uh, got to keep a compulsory troop yeah. alive, haven't you? So it's... Uh, you got to make sure that... Yeah, you got to make sure that your troops' choices, that at least one of your troop choices doesn't get destroyed. This seems eminently doable, but not for every army. Because I know a lot of people that run, you know, minimum troop choices and and, and, and try to uh, win in other, uh, in other ways. 
So I think this is eminent, eminently doable, uh, but it really does wind up being a question of conserving, uh, you know, of hiding uh, troop droids behind buildings and shit like that. Yeah, which once again matches the campaign mindset. Sometimes you yep. do need to keep your troops in reserve. You do need to protect your valuable troops. So, yeah, once again, another nice one, isn't it? But once again, not impossible to achieve. And if your opponent doesn't know quite what you're doing, sometimes those troop choices are ignored because they're not a priority target when yep. you've got like a glaive wandering towards if, you. If they're not sitting on an objective, maybe you don't kill, need to kill that militia squad, right? Yeah. No, you always need to give them militia. That's what they're there for. Leave them alone. They didn't do anything to you, Darren. They were there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you organized... <laughs> You organized this so that you could have you could do the third one, right? Oh, d- d- what a coincidence! The final one is tip of the spear. <laughs> what a coincidence! What a coincidence! There we go. So the difference with this one is the previous two grand stratagems apply to every game played. Tip of the spear is different. You select one player on your t- team, and that one player has to win their game. But this one, you know, it's it's a hard one, isn't it? You know, you have you have to go into this game knowing that you're going to win it. Um, this is, a, in a way, this is a bit of a showy off one, isn't it? It's just like, yeah, we're really confident about this. We, we're going to do this. So that one guy or girl is going to annihilate their opponent and win the game. We're confident. So we're going to invest tip of a spear and go for it. That's a lot of pressure. It is a That's lot, a of, lot pressure. of pressure. It but is like, a lot of pressure. Sometimes this happens with campaigns. Uh, um, as we're recording this, uh, obviously, uh, this will come out a couple weeks after, uh, we, you know, because we record over a couple uh, sessions um, on Sundays. Uh, but as we're recording this, Scandis is going on right now. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't go this year uh, for financial. Like, I can't afford it right now. Uh, but uh, I, I remember <laughs> last time I went to Scandis on our team. One of the things that's great about Scandis is that. Uh, it's 3,500 points and you can bring anything you want. You can, you can play Leviathan, right? So um, uh, there's, there's a couple warlord Titans rolling around at 3,500 points. And I remember uh, on our team, someone had to face a warlord Titan. It was Linus. Uh, well, uh, Linus is warlord Titan. It's just like, Oh man, well, Linus is a great dude. And I, I, I was like team leader um, or, or commander of, of the se- of, of the separatists, and I was like, okay, look, I'm going to take one for the team. I'm going to face Linus, even though I, there's no chance I'm defeating his army. It was uh, a warlord titan and a bunch of thalax. <laughs> like, I'm not fucking winning this game. <laughs> um, and so sometimes you have just one like very fucking good list and one very good player. Linus is an incredible player. Um, so it's one of those things. It's like, okay, we could. There's a good chance that this guy's going to take it. Yeah, absolutely. It so might that- be worth taking that gamble. It could be. And sometimes those gambles in the campaign are some of the most fun points because you know the pressure and the rest of the team is going to keep an, half an eye on that game to see how it's going. So, yeah, it, it's good fun. I, I, like, I like that one. Um, I think, well, let's talk about favourites at the end. Um, and so that's for Grand Stratagems. So the next optional rule, and to be honest, I think if you're doing Grand Stratagems, you need to pick the next one to go with it as well, are Tactical Advantages. So this is played, or these are used on a game-by-game basis and player-by-player basis. This isn't like the grand stratagems which are kept secret. These aren't um, only used by uh, as a team decision. 
different parts of your side can use these tactical advantages. And these use your fealty points. And remember, your fealty points you gain by winning games. So it starts off very low and then it will build up over time. You get one per game you win. So when you start the game and you before set up and so on, you can declare that you're using this tactical advantage and you take away the points. So you spend your fealty points and then you have to declare to your opponent which tactical advantage you want to use and your points reduced straight away. You can only use a single one in a game. And if you and your opponent both want to use the same one, you have to roll off to see who actually gets it. So you could end up spending the points and then not actually getting the advantage of it. So there is a bit of a risk here. Um, I like that. I like that. It encourages that kind of competition going on as well. And then these are quite expensive, aren't they? So once again, do you want to take it in turns to go through these, JP? Sure, you want to go first? Yeah, I don't mind, yeah. So the first one is Reserve Core, and this costs two fealty points, so you have to win two games previously. And when you play this uh, Reserve Core, at the end, you do not add your victory points to a ruin total. So you're fighting conservatively. You're trying to avoid those kind of built-up civilian areas. You're not going for, as JP mentioned at the beginning of this uh, segment, you're not fighting for total warfare you're fighting a restricted. You're following the rules of war almost. So why that, why, would, why would you do this? Uh, why would you choose to not add your victory points to the ruin total? Because you're behind. Yeah. <laughs> so because maybe That's you're a pregnant you're, question. Yeah. No. No. Because you know you're you you could be losing the campaign. You could be behind on games one. So you want to have a chance to swing it back. So you don't want to cause as much damage to that system to give you the chance to regain it. And the huge advantage is you still get, uh, you still get all, all your other points. So you can still go for uh, what we talked about before. If, if you're, if you're falling behind and keep playing, trying to get victory points, try to get, try to get more spoils points. Uh, but the advantage is that it won't, um, uh, it won't bring the counter up faster. So yeah. you can actually keep playing your game. And, and if you're, if your team is behind, you can actually, um, uh, otherwise, you might try to avoid victory points to try to uh, to give your side a chance. If you know you're going to lose, uh, try to give your chance uh, your side a, a chance to catch up. But this allows yeah, you to avoid that. It, it stops that sometimes what you see in a campaign of that runaway, the one one side yeah. or one play gets momentum building, and it's very then difficult to block them from just running away the whole campaign. So it does go a little way to mitigate that. So the second one is Scorched Earth, uh, which is like. <laughs> I think it's the opposite. Yes. Um, so uh, when you apply this to a game, uh, you apply twice your victory points to the ruin total. This is what you use if you're winning. Burn yeah. it all down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's what you use if you're winning or you're a Night Lords player. Oh, yeah. You can't resist, right? <laughs> yeah. If you're a Night Lords player and you reserve core, you're going to get a funny look. The scorched earth, just burn it all down. Yeah. Yeah. I like this one. But we'll, we'll talk about favourites, yeah. So you add twice your victory points to the total. So, you know, it's going to go a long way. Um, the next one is Endless Zeal. And this is expensive. This is five fealty points. So it's really expensive. Um, and this one is you can seize the initiative on a two plus. Do you now, find that this is incredibly poorly written? Yes. 
When this tactical advantage is applied to a game, the player that used it succeeds at any seized initiative checks made on a two plus. I don't think that made should be there. This this seems like this seems it should be caught in the edit because that's this, that's very poorly. I, I would yeah. definitely like I um if, if I was marking this as a, as a term paper, I would circle this in red and write awkward. Yes, yeah. Consider phrasing, and I think to go. I mean, talking about the expense there, for how many fealty points it is. One of the things to remember is you, the fealty points is done by team. So, for example, if you got four players aside and three of those people won their last campaign turn, that's three fealty points your team gains. So you're taking these fealty points from your team total, not an individual total. So once again, there's a bit of discussion going on here. Um, it's a bit of an odd one as well, because if you've got five fealty points, the chances are you're going to be leading it anyway. So you're choosing whether to go first or go second. So I would, lo- a- I w- I would love to combine this with tip of the spear. Yeah, yes. same, thinking the same thing. Yeah, that's yeah. like game that you need to win that that pivotal campaign game. Yeah. So we've got two more to go. So do you want to do the next one, JP? Tactical reserves. Uh, it's going to cost you three uh, fealty points. Essentially, you, you add plus one to your reserve rolls. Great. That's just awesome. It is, it Especially is for people like uh, people that run perhaps uh, drop drop bot armies or stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, adding one to reserve rolls is, you know, there's quite a lot of units in the game that can manipulate reserve rolls. Um, so Damocles Rhino, uh, I think the Achilles, the, Dam- the um, one of the Land Raider variants can as well. But getting a plus one to it is much more challenging. So, you know, you could really stack up this. But yeah, it's not it's not a bad one, is it? And it's I only prefer, three I would prefer points. I would prefer a reroll. Because then you could reroll if you win, uh, if you succeed. And you'd rather it not come in. I'm, I'm not fussed by a reroll. Sons of Horse good on a one anyway. Uh, that's true. But, you know. Well, you guys are winners. That's that's it. Until <laughs> the end. Until, until Horus lets us down. But anyway, let's talk about the last one, which is good ground costing four points this is really intriguing this one so what it does is when you spend the points you can decide to change the deployment zones and you don't get to well it's a bit of an odd one the wording once again this is an awkwardly rich one because it says they may select any new deployment zone from the table presented on page 141 for rulebook note that players still use the mission rules to select one of the available deployment zones so it's a little bit complicated. You need to work your way through it. But the fact that your opponent could select a mission and you think, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to go for that setup. And then suddenly you go, no, actually, I want to change that. It once again takes the initiative away from your opponent. You put them on their back foot, which I do quite like. I think it's a, uh, I, I think this is really, really cool. Um, I, I, and I can't think of too many examples of this is pretty unique. Yeah, I can't think of anything where you can do this. There's, there's, yeah, you know, really there's cool. no units. Oh man, imagine swishing to like ambush. Yeah, that's why I think like that, worst, like some of the, the worst ones. one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting. And then, really, the final of the, the core optional rules is on kind of as you kind of refer to them is warlord and famed character casualties. Now, obviously, in book four conquest, there's a real in depth system for this. Yeah, which, you know, is fantastic. But if you just want a a quick and dirty one then this is the way forward. And what happens is, is if you're a warlord or any other unique named character, and what's quite nice is they actually do specify that is encounters any character you've created yourself and named. 
So it doesn't have to be a warlord. If you, you know, we all like naming our characters. We've all, we all tend to do that. Um, the Hellefurian campaign had lots of named characters in there, for instance, which aren't official ones, but for the purpose of this optional rule, they do count. If that character is, at the end of the game, removed as a casualty, including falling back off the table, you roll a dice to see what happens to them. If you won your game, you get to re-roll the dice. So that's a nice, simple mechanic. So if you roll a one, they're dead. Their head was taken, they're critically wounded, they cannot be used again, and your opponent gets one spoils point. So that, you know, there's an incentive here for going after those characters. Two to four is your character is shaken by their ill fortune, and for the next game, they're minus one leadership. You see, this is the only one of these rules that I would say, I would like le- legitimate say, like ditch. I, I don't like this rule. Uh, for one thing, I would go back to the crusade system for the character yeah. advancement, which is super fun. Um, but also when we play campaigns, um, like in house with 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 my friends, we we ditch uh, we ditch the uh, character deaths because we don't find them interesting. Um, you work on this character, you, you know, you you convert them and everything like that, and then especially especially if you've actually built the character up, built background name, you know, not just like a named character, uh, and to lose them for a campaign, I think that's that's kind of boring. So we attempt to make them immortal, and uh, if they do die after uh, a game, they miss a game. And then they come back and we only kill characters when it's narratively appropriate, but that might just be the way that we play. Uh, but I don't like the idea of, of you roll a one and Oh, cool. So this, 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 uh, this character that I've been developing, developed the backstory, did the conversion. Um, and, and okay, so I'm going to put this character aside for now. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't like it. I agree. I'm. I mean, the final roll by the way is unscathed. You, you get through it without any injuries at all. I think if I was going to be doing this with friends, we would look more of a conquest system for character yeah. progression and and character injuries and so on, or it, just skip it completely because it's it's a it's a cinematic universe. How often do you, you know pick a franchise? How often do characters die? Well, they can die, but like so long as it's narratively appropriate. That's and, it. And, and and sometimes like one of the characters dies, but it's so cool. It's just like, okay, I'm just taking this death, right? Because this is a cool, this is a good death. Um, like Loken, for example. Um, just, let's not go there. Oh just, no, no. Let's not pick <laughs> it. That's been it. So let's pick any other random character. Um, so, but what I'm just, I'm just saying that I, I don't like this one. Uh, use the uh, use yeah. the conquest uh, bolt on, and this was great about all these campaign systems that we're going to be talking about in the next couple episodes. I think uh, you can bolt on anything you want. They are a very modular. You know, you can yes. easily bolt yeah. on the conquest um, uh, um, uh, uh, character advancement tables to this, and you can ditch the uh, you know uh, character deaths if that's the kind of thing that you like. You you really want to like you know roll that d six to see if your character is dead or not. Do it. Yeah, I absolutely. don't like it. It's done by it's done by your gaming group, isn't it? It's what works best. So, Miles, what do you think of these optional rules? There is one set more set of uh, optional rules from the escalation rules, which we'll talk about separately. But what do you think about these grand stratagems and these tactical advantages? Nice. I mean, they're simple to understand. Uh, they don't complicate the game. So you don't need a huge discussion before you game. Uh, there's no real complex mechanics behind it. Uh, it they feel a little bit like. Um, a bolted-on version of uh, command points, 40k. Mm. So, you, but you have to 
instead of command points being given to you uh, through army creation, you have to earn the right to spend these points. Um, yeah, uh, I, I do agree about the Warlord deaths. Uh, I, I do like the jeopardy of having your characters be able to die uh, during campaigns, uh, even if it's frustrating you, even if it takes, even if you have to reorder your narrative. Uh, I, I think it's a much more accurate representation of this godless universe. Well, full of gods. I, I don't know. Oh, come on. It's the very depends, opposite of a godless universe. Depends where you, you stand uh, philosophically. Uh, but yeah, I do agree. Um, the, con- uh, the the other system for uh, characters, casualties. But I guess if you're just trying to get through this quickly, having the minus one, having the simplified version is nice. It's nice to have the option there. But I mean, during campaigns, there, so if your character, I don't know, burned to death, it, it's it's nice having something to represent that. Normally, you talk with your opponent. I don't know. He has an aversion to to melt a weaponry. Uh, you know, you can build in that narrative yourself for the discussion. But if you just want something clean, easy, simple, boom, roll a d three. You have the result. Yeah, n- nice, nice little addition. That uh, that um, what, what's the gamer's term for this? Um, the wrinkle. It has the wrinkle into the games. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to add two things. Number one, if you want a simplified system that's uh, still um, more fun than this one, um, Victory's Vengeance has a great uh, system for uh, character for character deaths in which they have to like, if they die, they have to redeem themselves. They have a chance of redeeming themselves. So um, say the character goes down and and so so you roll on the wound table and they have like minus one minus one toughness. You can redeem and uh, redeem them in the next game by by fulfilling a certain objective, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, that's so cool. much fun. And the second thing I would add is the problem with tactical advantages. The only thing that I, I can see as a problem is the fixed cost of the advantages um, depending on if you're playing a uh, if you're playing a campaign with 15 players and you're playing one with two, um, some of these might not even be usable. I, I I would suggest if you're playing with a like maybe a variable, maybe not a variable cost, but uh, maybe give more points, uh, more 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 fealty points for a win if you're playing with lower numbers of players, just so you can or actually start, access the stuff. Or start with a set amount. Both both yes. players start with ten. For yeah. example, as, as an arbitrary number. Cool. So quite positive. The, the final kind of optional rule is one I was so pleased to see in here because it's one of my biggest bugbears, one of the things that really irritates me the most. And this is giving you rules for an escalation element. And, you know, we've all talked about escalation campaigns. You know, they've, they've been a big part. And what I really like about this is it gets away from mentality that heresy has to be played at 3,000 points. When there are so many missions and campaign elements in throughout the Black Books, like City Fight, Strategic Raids, and so on, which are designed to be played at smaller points levels. And actually, sometimes when you play smaller points, they're more enjoyable games because you can't have all the big destructive bits. You're having to be more selective. So how does the escalation rules work? And what's kind of the thinking behind it? The thinking behind it, the kind of a narrative behind an escalation in this case, is the fighting starts off quite low level. And as it's clear that there's not one side dominating, they send in more resources into that area to increase the, the chance of success. But obviously, the other side then throws in their forces into that area. And you just get this 
gradual increase over time of resources, equipment, manpower, etc. So how does it work in game? Well, you still pick a points total, which is the final points total you're aiming for. So 3,000 points being the typical. And then it's based on the amount of ruin you currently have in your campaign. Now, they do give the example of 3,000 points, and they give the idea that if it's less than 20% of your ruin point total for the campaign, then you can have 25% of your army available to you. If it's between 20 and 60%, you get up to 60% of your army available. And if it's more than 60% for ruin has been caused, then you get 100%. So for a 3,000-point gain, if you've got between 0 and 6 ruin points, you get 750 points available for, for, your, for your gain. If you have between 7 and 18 ruin points, you'd have 1,800 points. And more than 19 campaign or 19 ruin points, you get your full 3,000 points. What I really like about this is it's a good way to introduce people into playing heresy and playing heresy campaigns. You know, like if there was a new box set coming out, for example, you could say, right, well, let's start off with, for example, you know, let's start off with just 750 point armies. And we're building up towards it. Okay, we've got to seven to six campaign points. Let's pause here while we add on the next X number of points to our armies to get up to the next points total. So then you've got that natural break in the campaign while people are creating the next step. So I really like to see this. Obviously, it's um, not just for people slowly building up their armies. You could do it over a campaign weekend, for example. And just bring along your full 3,000 points in one go and then just allocate your, allocate your points out. But I quite like it. I quite like having rules on how you can have an escalation campaign going into it. And it's unusual points values as well, 750, 1,800. Uh, you know, something slightly different. And then you can adjust it. You could do a Zone Mortinus game for those lower points, representing you going into um, factories, for example, fighting fighting inside command bunkers. So what do you think? I think it's great. Um, I, I again, I think everybody likes slow grow uh, campaigns. I think wasn't Return to Istvan partially that? Yeah, it, it was exactly that. Um, the start of lockdown, I was bored. Uh, the gaming group was bored, uh, and we decided to look back on those dream armies that we wanted to do. Um, it, because we've all, everybody in the community has sort of collected their first army. They may have gone to the secondary army, but we all have that one army we, want, we wanted to go back and re-experience. For me, it was the Sons of Horus. Uh, so yeah, it was exactly that. It was it was a slow grow uh, uh, international uh, slow grow campaign because we were all locked inside. I mean, what have been your experiences with slow grow campaigns, Darren? Um, we haven't really done that many, to be honest. But they've been. We've tended to come from where everyone's already got a large army, and we mm. decided to do smaller games and build up from that using existing forces. I have heard, obviously, that you always get the um, discussions around them, don't you? And they work all right as long as everyone is building up. But if you've got, I mean, my gaming group, um, as a, sorry, guys, I'm going to be honest about this, we're quite slow painters, and we yeah. were quite slow to put projects together because mm-hmm. we just... It, well, we That's not relatable at all. You know, I, I so, look down at your gaming group. How do you know it, Lords Go? Wait, what? <laughs> so, you know, so 
it all depends on it. Part I think part of it depends on the speed of your gaming group to put stuff together, which is why we've tended to do in the past where we have existing forces, and then you can just start with smaller games. Just and sometimes we've even used it to get used to a new rule set. Yeah, just, I mean, just for, kind of, our gaming groups doing the same a similar thing with forty k at the moment. We're all kind of like choosing factions and working our way through it like that. Uh, but yeah, I haven't. So the, the only slow grow campaign I've ever taken part in is actually the Return to a Spun. Uh, campaign and that was a re- direct reaction because of, of covid uh, it, it's very rare like i'll buy an army or collect something to practice a campaign uh, or participate in a campaign uh but i don't know with this new well proposed new um uh edition coming out it, 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 this might be a cool little addition to because uh, um, like you said it, it's sort of like sector wide there a lot of battles took place like this across the universe where two forces ravaged each other in a sector and left it a wasteland. Yeah. So you could broaden it, you can flatten this out. In fact, the next, very next uh, section, the Eastern Fringe, uh, the Thrama sector, the Triplex sector, Tithe Road, it gives you narrative hooks, narrative examples of how you can take this campaign system and extrapolate it into your own story. Yeah, and this, and this that's a really good segue in, isn't it? Because up till now, all the rules we talk about, you could apply to any system. And you can combine that with a book four rules, because the book four has rules for creating your own systems and so on, and, and specific mm. campaign rules around that. So, you know, it's like JP was mentioned earlier, you can bolt things together. This final section is specific for Thramas. In the Thramas sector and the rules for playing in in that. So, JP, do we want to take or do we want to take these one at a time? Let's start with the Thramas sector itself and the main one. Obviously, the Thramas sector is kind of the heart of the Eastern Fringe and lots of hive worlds. So, if you are playing in the Thramas sector, and this is when you just make the choice of opponents on what what sector do we want to fight over for this one, and there's what's for all of these. There's terrain features you have to include or adaptions to the rules for playing on that terrain and then there's disadvantages and advantages for your ruin points or your fealty points so if you're playing in a thramus sector for every four thousand points you're playing you have to have at least one large building in the game so if you're playing a three thousand point game you have to have three large buildings once you've finished the game either player can choose to sacrifice spoils points and what you then do is for every spoils point you sacrifice, you reduce the ruins points by two. So it represents you're using your resources to rebuild Thramas. Oh. So you, you're progressing the campaign on for longer. Mm. So if you were playing in Thramas and you then used a Reserve Core, you're really progressing the campaign on. You're really making sure this campaign stretches out. Oh, that's really rad. Um, I actually like all of these, but I, I like the idea that uh, one of the uh, one of the section actually brings the runes down, or the rune. Um, what one of the, uh, the 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 areas brings the uh, rune uh, score down? Yeah, that's I the guess, primary sector. Yeah, yeah, the triplex center is the opposite, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of these uh, mirror uh, kind of uh, rules. So the triplex center uh, uh, sector is, is are, are those forge worlds. They're incredibly important. Um, so all uh, uh, so they, they should mainly be buildings. So uh, again, 
uh, a part of these rules is that it, it sort of informs what the terrain should be. Essentially, gives every uh, building uh, blessed, uh, blessed. Uh, God damn it! You know it's going to take me a couple shots to get this. Blessed auto simulac. Blessed ocu simul. Blessed auto. Blessed auto Aaron, simulacra. Do do it? You want to do it? Blessed auto simulacra. Yeah. Oh, was that easy? Fuck you guys. Yep. Blessed auto simulacra. Okay, I'm the Queen of England. I don't have fucking speech impediment. <laughs> So, all the buildings have blessed auto simulac. Fuck off, uh, <laughs> uh, Darren. You want to tell us what that does? Because I don't remember. From what I can remember, and my rule book is the other side of the room, so I can't reach it. But I'm pretty sure that's like feel no pain for vehicles or buildings with hole points. So I think at the end of the turn, you roll a d6 on the five, you get a hole point back or uh, a point of damage back. Oh, so it, should, it, 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 it will not die. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's what it is. Should should we take a second to check or nah nah nah, nah. let's go with that. Nah. Let's just, keep, going. <laughs> keep going. Someone will tell us if we're wrong. Ah fuck well, I think something like that. But yeah, that's you know, it's it's rad. So if you win this, so if you win a game uh and you're playing in the triplex sector, you get plus two spoil points, which is great, but also you get an extra d6 ruin points to the pool. You add an extra d6 uh ruin points to the pool. Uh, which is bad, <laughs> which is very bad. It, well, yes. it, it depends on if you're winning or not. This is what's so challenging, right? Like, um, if you're winning, then you want those ruin points to get up. You want to blow up the fucking sector as quickly as possible. If you're losing, then you want those ruin points to come down. Yeah. I, I find this really challenging. And, and that's one of the, um, uh, the, the really uh, interesting bits to this, uh, this really interesting uh, parts of this campaign system is that you don't really know when it's going to end and you can sort of, you can go to overtime, if you will. Yes. Uh, I mean, sorry, extra, a, extra minutes. Is that what you guys yeah. call it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You, you can do things to either speed things up or slow things down. Yeah. But because you're never kind of a hundred percent sure how you're going to be getting victory points for the next mission anyway, you can't say, Oh, we know we've only got four games left in this campaign because you may have a one game where you just reap in loads of victory points and then your ruin total has gone up massively. So it all depends. The next sector I'm really pleased to see, which is the Aegis sector. And this is about agri-worlds. And it's one yes. thing that bugs me about 40k and 30k is how infrequently do we see games with natural surroundings. Hold how on. Ba back in second and third edition, every single battle in the 41st millennium was fought on perfect grassland. Yes. Yes. That's back in second and third edition. So let's let's re rephrase that with <laughs> modern 40k and 30k only ever seems to take place in urban environments. Okay. Okay. All right. But what I like about this one is it does say there should be sparse buildings and large open spaces with heavy foliage and trees. But... This is still 30k. So what you do, once you set up all the terrain, you roll a d6, and on a 4+, plus, this area has already been hit, and probably if the lines around by cyclonic torpedoes, and the battlefield has already been damaged. So any difficult terrain becomes dangerous terrain. And, Fucking you know, brutal. With this kind of setup, you generally would have quite a lot of difficult terrain, but... What is the end result of this? What does this mean in terms of your bonus points? Well, if you win a game in the Aegis sector, because there's more people living there, 
you gain two fealty points, not just a single fealty point. I mean, that's so, rad, know, but can I just take a moment to to read the description of, of what happens when you roll uh, four or less? Yeah. That the, the forests are smoldering or infested with biophage agents and rocks are turned to atomic blasted glass. So 30k. Yeah, brilliant. We love it. So great. So yeah, you might wind up. Essentially, what winds up happening is uh, your army's been posted to defend this 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 farmland and defend the people, and you wind up there. Like uh, your army shows up there, and it's already been destroyed, and you still have to follow your orders. <laughs> it's it's it, it, it's so dark. This is like the darkest campaign system I've ever seen. Yes, but that's good because when you read the background narrative in Book Nine, like we discussed quite a few episodes ago now. Um, it's a horrible campaign. Yes, yeah, nihilistic. Okay, so the next possibility is the Gulgarad Protectorate, uh, which was this like loyalist, I guess, uh, um, uh, uh, loyalist space uh, within Thramas, uh, which were kind of like blown up to shit by the Night Lords. So uh, all games played in this uh, section are one turn longer and should have a lot of like runes and stuff like that because they get blown up to shit. This has less impact on the greater war, so you can't add more than four spoils points to the, your total at the end of the game, uh, but ruins points are halved. So this is like a secondary uh, a sector, like a secondary space, which I think is interesting, and, and it is, it's worth noting that not everything is, you know, the triplex sector, which is, like, crucial. It is, but this is also another one that if the campaign is really close between you, maybe you want to have a few games of a gold group protectorate to try to eke out a bit longer because it, it's that bloody stalemate, isn't it? It, it you know, it, it's that horrible grind that sometimes you just need to have to keep pushing things on. This is quite a good one early, early campaign for slowly building up your spoils points, but for not bringing out okay, massive yeah. amounts of ruin points. So, you know, it, it's, it's a quite a nice one for your small point games. If you're doing an escalation, because then you're not going to cause too much devastation. So you That's will have the opportunity to bring in your bigger points games later. I do find that resource management is such a, an interesting, such an interesting uh, addition to the campaign system that you have to like manage your spoils and you have to manage your uh, ruin. And, you know, if you're not doing well, you might want to try to avoid these. And so you roll off and decide these, right? So this might be a good one to pick if you're, if you're running behind. And of yeah. course, if you're if you're doing really well, let's fucking go for broke at the triple X sector and get that extra D six ruin to end the end the campaign. It's it it would be difficult to organize. Uh, I, the more I look at it, the, the more I think about it, it, it might be difficult to organize because you don't know how many games you're gonna play. It, I, I don't think this is one of those things that 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 would be suitable for like a convention weekend. No, no, no. But, but it could be quite good that, for. Right? But it would be quite good for a narrative event. Yes. So a small group of people, you know, like 20 people or something at a campaign weekend, that, that I think it could quite work quite well. And then we've got the final sector, which is the Tithe Road, which, according to the background, low population, but it's key because it has stable warp routes going through it. So stable warp routes are always highly fought over. So if you're playing a game in the Tithe Road, then the terrain should reflect that sparse population. So you should focus on things like barren hills, swamps, scrub vegetation. You then roll a D3, and D3 of those dangerous terrain, or D3 areas of dangerous terrain, should also be marked out. And I love how they describe this. 
razor sharp volcanic rocks, natural obstacles, predatory foliage. <laughs> so you could get eaten by a vicious grass. What you then do is at the end of each game turn, both players roll a D6. If a result of your scores is four or less, then there is a sudden storm blows up. So it could be a sandstorm, uh, a sudden hail of razor sharp crystals, uh, even a ferocious downpour of water, you know, something as mundane as a normal rainstorm. It then lasts for the rest of the game. While the storm is present, is present, you have night fighting rules in effect. And at the end of each turn, if you're a unit that is not embarked in a transport vehicle or a building or a fortification or in reserve, you take a number of hits equal to the models of a unit at strength five AP dash. So this is dangerous to be out in. Yeah. <laughs> it is dangerous to be out in. But night fighting, if you're a Night Lords player, you're going to be hoping to roll low to get this storm in place. <laughs> <laughs> but what does this mean? Well, the games of a tithe road only contribute ruin to the campaign. Oh, so, brutal. So um, what happens is it only contributes ruin to the uh, from the winning player, not the both players so um if we go back to the example earlier where we're talking about you add the victory points together to create ruin it's only ruin points from the winning player that gets added on and it's really interesting it's from a winning player because obviously they'll have a higher victory point total so you know you there's no positive effects for fighting along the ties road so why would you pick it because you want to speed up the campaign yeah yeah that makes sense so but when you want to speed up the campaign without Gaining another advantage, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's there's no gain from real gain from it as well. Or if you just want to hammer your opponent because you're going to be hoping for a storm coming in or something like that. Like night lords, you would probably go for this because you're getting the advantage of night potentially getting the advantage of night fighting. From a an event organizer perspective, not not that I am one, but like if, if I can no. imagine um, the difficulties. Um, this might be problematic, uh, the way that it's structured, uh, because it allows players to roll and then set up the table. I think uh, if I was so running this as a narrative event, I would say for each campaign turn, this is the system you're fighting. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I want to say. It's like, you should set up these tables in advance and then assign play players to them. And if you have too many players, maybe, uh, double up on Thramas and Triplex since they're the most, uh, um, um, since they balance e e themselves out, they balance each other out, and also they're probably the most uh, populous areas. And and I I really just set up these tables as they are, and then uh, players can be assigned to them. But I think this is brilliant. Um, I think it's it, it's such a, a nice touch. They're all very different. Um, and and that's one thing that we don't see a lot uh, with these campaign systems. You know, it's like oh, you know lava world everything's dangerous terrain you know that kind of stuff it's like they're not as evocative and they don't actually affect the campaign that much they only affect the game this stuff uh, all all these like um specific worlds affect the campaign which i think is very different very cool and what's also quite nice is if you're creating your own uh system like from conquest you can use these as a basis for your own system so like triplex is perfect if you're fighting in a heavy forge world sector if you're fighting in an agri-world sector, well, then you can use um, the Aegis sector. 
is you're fighting around hive worlds, then it, you use the Thramus sector. So although they're specific for the Eastern sector, you can take them as inspiration for your own sectors. You may just not have such a wide variety. You know, of all the rules here, I probably leave these out of my own campaigns, uh, purely from a, a practical point of view. So you manage to gather a bunch of guy, uh, a bunch of people together. You manage to coerce. You manage to to um, what's the phrase? Uh, corral these cats in one direction, um, and you have a, a set number of games. And what happens when you come to the end of your campaign and you have another game that that has to be played because of the system after the like campaign say you have like four weeks to run this you wouldn't necessarily go on another week to play that extra game yeah no i see what you yeah, mean yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you i think use it if you're going to use these you'd want to do it with a smaller number of people because yeah. then you can have it as a lot more of a a discussion point as opposed to we're just going to run re-roll off yeah, because how annoying would it be if, like, sorry, guys, I said the campaign would end this week, but because of the Ruin campaign, we have to play another two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I completely agree with you about that. But they are nice. They, they're a nice addition to have. Yeah, it's lovely because to it's have. Not, yeah, it's a nice... But like I said, it's modular. Like, it feels very... Mo- like, you can both yeah. these things... All, all these are easily modular. Leave, yeah, you can very easily think leave things out without affecting it in total... Yeah, so it... If you were running, I don't like a, a weekend. I think it could be used then if you had quick playing players. But yeah, it's, it's like you say, it's, it's modular. It's nice that it's there. Uh, shall we get on to the missions? Yeah, because it's always nice to have more missions, isn't it? Mm, yeah. And these missions are so fucking cool, though. These are some I of the best ones they've ever done. Oh, God, they're really cool. Huh. Uh, well, yeah, most of them are really cool. Oh, uh, some, some of them are most? kind of like... <laughs> okay. There's there's four new missions in here, isn't there, basically? And they do yeah. say they can be... Um, they're not intended just for Thramas, and they're not historical battles. They're not just battles fought between the, night, yes. the Dark Angels and the Night Lords. They are just de- what they refer to as devastation missions. So these are missions which are tearing down sectors. Yeah, so uh, as we go through them... Um... Uh, rather than just like like you know reading them out because uh, it's it's a lot of text, uh, let's explain what the mission is. Um, uh, should I start with Logic War or do you want to you want to do it? Oh, actually, we should explain real quick that um, there is a table to roll uh, if you want to use. So the, uh, again, as Darren was saying, they're devastation missions. They're not necessarily uh, a tie to Thramus. So if you want to use these missions, there's four new ones, but also uh, there's a D6 roll. So uh, and there's also two of the old missions. So uh, Blood Feud and Tide of Carnage from uh, the, the standard rulebook are, are, are on the table. So do you want to start? Do you want to start with um, Logic of War? Yeah, this is um, uh, 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 essentially uh, this mission is there's a point in the middle of the table. Um, you know, you could have a terrain piece or whatever. And somewhere <laughs> someone had decided that this is. Um, an important objective to uh, to, maintain, uh, to to take. This is one of my favorite kinds of missions: is that you gain points every turn. So uh, uh, every turn that you, that a player controls the objective, um, you gain a number of objectives. Uh, of objectives, you gain a number of victory points. 
so on turn one, you get three uh, turns, two to three, two, and turns four uh, and above, you gain one point. So it's really useful. Just drop on that. If you have that like turn one drop pod, uh, gain control of that objective. That's really, really cool. Um, it's It's got a, a, some secondary objectives, say the Warlord, Last Man Standing, Price Failure. We all know those. But it, I love missions where you can start banking points and it makes you make an effort and not just try to like sit back uh, until the last turn of the game and just like make a big push. And it also encourages you to take different types of troops because you may want to consider things like recon marines so you can infiltrate yes. onto the objective, for example, or fast attack, fast moving things like bikes or jet bikes to be able to move up onto that objective because you know three victory points on the first turn that's massive that's huge, yeah, that's huge. That, that is a huge amount so having something like your, your lowly recon marine going oh yeah we're on there already we're okay alpha legion and raven guard would love this mission but then the disadvantage is later in the game because you've got those kind of power armored recon troops in there earlier on the enemy advancing with their cataphracty are going to put more pressure on. It also encourages you to take troops because troops tend to have implacable advance. So they gain an advantage over getting the objective from elite troops, for example. Although a lot of the elite troops in the Astartes army do have implacable advance. But, you know, so there's a lot of troop selection to go with this to make the most of the mission. But, yeah, I like it. And I agree, I like missions where you get victory points every turn. I feel it's more dynamic. And it helps out with the system as well. We've been talking about where um, victory points not only affect the outcome of individual games, but the campaign as a whole. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point, because if you get three victory points, well, that's three ruin points straight away. Yeah, who cares if you you lose the rest of the game? Yeah. Okay, Uh, mission two. Did you want to do it, Miles? No, God, no. Oh, well. I don't understand. I, I haven't, I haven't you didn't, read You didn't these. read any of these. No, I haven't read any of the missions. Okay. Darren? So, yes, mission two is No Stone Upon Stone, and this is about capturing keystone buildings. So there's four keystone buildings on the table during deployment. And um, once again, you have to have the most victory points to win. It's self-explanatory. But, but at the end of the game... Each keystone building is worth a number of victory points depending on its state. So (laughs) if you're destroying buildings, you're losing victory points. So if if a a keystone building has been destroyed by one side and is not destroyed, then it's worth four victory points to the side that's claimed it. If it is destroyed, it's worth two victory points to the side that did destroy it. So they're better to be captured but if you can't capture them, yep. you if might necessary. as well destroy them. And depending on the points value you're playing depends on how difficult that building is to damage. So um, if they're 2,000 points or less, they have got four whole points, armor value of 13 and transport capacity of five. If you're playing 3,000 points or more, then there's seven whole points, 15 armor value and transport capacity of 20 uh, and they all have mighty bulwark, which um, gives them a little bit more resistance, doesn't it? If I remember rightly, I think it's another like really fun mission. Yeah. So. Oh, th- and that's a really nice secondary objective: scorched earth. 
Each non-keystone building and fortification destroyed is worth an additional victory point. Yeah, I think it's really rad. I love everybody loves destroyable terrain. Um, Wasn't there a mission in uh, I think third edition forty k where if you destroyed a building, it would give you something like five victory points, or you'd win the game? Uncrustle. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uncrustle. Yeah. How easy was that mission for you with Eldar? Oh yeah, just haywire everywhere. <laughs> it's just like, it's not just, okay. Yeah. Star yeah, for me, bring it down to AV12. I had a, yeah. a, a dark elder army, yeah, with raiders just blew it up the first turn. Yeah, uh, it's just like... But how I, often do, do you see this kind of objective in game where the buildings become the priority? That, that's a really nice shift focus. Yes, especially if you combine this with city fighting rules. Mm. It suddenly becomes a very, or make this Zone Mortalis because don't forget, Zone Mortalis doesn't have to be spaceships. It can, right. it's any kind of dangerous terrain. So, this with Zone Mortalis rules will get very interesting very quickly. And then you could also put a, a kind of self imposed limit of, well, we're only going to play this in small points games because representing like special forces moving into season buildings. And then you haven't got the option to destroy them. You have to go in and capture them. And then you got that vicious building to building fighting going on. Oh, it's really rad. I I I I love. Yeah, that's uh, a cool. One. The, I oh. love the idea, and there's but there's a better one that's coming on. But um, first of all, let's talk about confrontation. I think this is a version of a mission that was I, I think in an event pack or something like that. Um, Can we just go back to no stone upon stone? Yes, sorry, sure. just just for a minute. What I would love to see is a Dreadwing Dark Angels player play this mission and then nominate those pieces of terrain as their dangerous train from a mission. Oh, that's brutal. Because <laughs> that would be so funny. Brutal. And it's very and it's very dreadwing as well. It's like we want those objectives, so we're gonna nuke them out. We're just gonna rad phage them. Anyway, let's carry on to confrontation. Confrontation. This is the third mission. Um and I believe this is a version of a, a an old mission that was part of a, a an event pack. Uh, 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 uh that um fundamentally you have two warlords, and I think this is this is savage weapons, right? Uh, we have two warlords that are talking, mm. and then you know things go to shit. And, oh, and that's some, right. Someone, yeah. someone leaves their power sword in another person's back. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so uh, you deploy like your two warlords, like uh, between eight and twelve inches. Uh, sorry, within twelve inches of the uh, of, of 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 the center of the table, and within eight inches of each other. Um, and essentially, this is all a big slay the warlord. So this is when things break down between the lion and Conrad Kurz, uh, or you know whoever you happen to be playing with. Uh, what's really cool about it is okay, the, the objective is to kill the other warlord, obviously. But the quicker you kill that warlord, the more points you get. So if you kill uh, the warlord on the first two turns, four victory points. Three to four is three, and five to six is only two victory points. So it gives you it gives you a um, uh, I guess a uh, uh, an incentive to just go at each other, which is fucking awesome. Uh, you also get extra victory points if you kill a character model as part of a challenge, as you always should, by the way. Um, and uh, an- another secondary objective is no price too steep. So uh, when a, uh, a unit is destroyed uh, while locked in combat with any model that includes at least one character model, the controlling player, so D6 on a five or more controlling player of the destroyed unit gains a victory point. There is also a special rule, blood demands blood, at the end of turn four, you roll a d6 and add one to the result of each warlord still in play with at least one wound remaining. Scores five or more than another turn is played. 
rolling again at the end of the game turn. Wait, four to seven turns. Oh, shit. Okay. I just realized something. I skipped a game length when I was explaining this. Uh, so normally it's turn four. And if uh, someone's still alive, you roll. I didn't explain that very well. We get the idea. Basically, we go for four turns. And if we're Warlords are still alive at the end of turn four, you roll off to see if the game continues. Yeah, fundamentally. And, and you keep rolling off until the end of turn seven if one of the Warlords is, if one, if both Warlords are still alive. This is one of those things that I was excited about the very premise of the of, of the mission and, and, and missed the key part of it. <laughs> yeah, I think this one's really nice for a small points game. Something like oh, 750,000 points. Or, yeah, something like that would be ideal. It's still end of turn four. That's really early. Yeah, but Come on, Small if you've got two, game. let's face Narrative it, game. you start eight inches away, that means yeah. on the first turn, <laughs> you're in combat. And then how often, apart from Primarchs versus Primarchs, how often do characters survive in challenges? That's true. Uh, if the, so this game uh, pack, it was either at the uh, weekend that uh, you attended or the one before that. Um, yeah, and it was advised that you only do small point games for this i think it was like a thousand points in yeah. the original rule pack the one that i went to was uh the attack on the vengeful, uh, vengeful spirit with russ which i missed because yeah. because craig I and remember. i couldn't find it that was for the um converted necro rules wasn't it yeah i can't, I can't remember I, know, I just can't remember you were sleeping remember like fucking dylan was like six months old so you hadn't slept in six months. No, oh no! When you were trying to find that game, I was out having a meal, and when I came back, oh, you were okay. in the you're in the hotel room. Yeah, Craig and I were in, just wandering around up stairwells trying to figure out where dark. the fuck this place was because you couldn't switch on the light. Oh, that was so sad. Right. I didn't realize. I didn't realize like how the lights worked. I was like, well, I guess I'm in the dark now. I didn't realize <laughs> you had to put your key card in. Why? Why do you have to put your key card in for the lights to work? Explain yeah. to me. <laughs> I, I don't know why. That's all. That's getting cut out. It's very embarrassing. Sitting in the dark, eating fucking like British snacks. Yeah, that's right. Then we bought on the way up. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck are you doing? It's like, the lights don't work, Miles. The lights don't work. It's like, oh, you were drunk. You put your key card in. It's like, what? Just put your key card in. It's like, but why? But why, Miles? But why? Me. Ask the modern uh, uh, hotel chains. There's a nefarious scheme in there somewhere. Just I can't figure it out. Some bullshit. Uh, Somebody's Darren. making money off that. <laughs> a big, big key card. Some fuckers making money off that. Yeah, uh, probably. Uh, Darren, uh, the last bastion. This one, uh, like I, I wish I could have described this one because it's fucking, it's amazing. This yeah, it's so a really interesting one. It's a really interesting. This is almost quite quite nice for a, a campaign end mission, I think. Um, kind of a, a last ditch. So it all represents, it's all around the fact that in the center of the table, somewhere on one half of the table, uh, has to be within 12 inches of the center, is a specific bastion or building. And they say it could be a planetary shield generator orbital weapons control complex resource vault whatever it is and you know it's a, it's a fairly substantial building it's arm value 14 seven hull points and transport capacity of 30 and mighty bulwark doesn't have any weapons though and once again it's one of these escalating victory points so at the end of the game if you have most victory points you win and 
if they've got the same number, it's a draw, obvious. But how do you gain those victory points? If you control the bastion at the end of your turn, you gain D3 victory points. Then you've got the usual slave of warlord, but but this is the point which raises a mission up, is the objective called the direst circumstances. If you get to the end of your sixth turn and you haven't got control of the last bastion and the enemy has got more victory points, then you can enact this objective. And what you do, if you can destroy the bastion before the end of the game, you gain D6 victory points. So it's a case of, well, if I can't have it, no one will. And you can't do that. You can't just blow it up and get those victory points. It has to be in the last turn of the game. Yeah. Look, and I, if, I love the trigger for that. That's so cool. Yeah, and if any model causes the last bastion to be destroyed in any other situation, you lose D6 victory points. So if you destroy it by accident on like turn three, your side will lose D6 victory points. It, you can only enact, you can only destroy it if you're losing on turn six. This is quite a good one for Iron Warriors and um, Imperial Fists because they can yeah. enact that extra turn, can't they? Uh, well, no, uh, you, your, your your opponent. Can, can get it enacted against them. <laughs> yes. But, you know, this is so it's a perfect situation for this one. But I really like the, this, this one. I really like It's really thematic. There's a lot of thinking. In fact, you can gain victory points for it every turn. Well, it's going to push your ruin total up in a Thramas campaign. But if you're not playing the Thramas campaign, you're creating lots of fighting in one location, which always makes a much more exciting game. Also, it's going to force you to keep a little bit of, uh, a little bit of tank hunting somewhere. Right, a little bit of um, of high strength or de weaponry uh, uh, off to the side, just in case as an insurance policy. Thought squads for melter bombs, ready to drop onto it if you need to. Yeah, or your tyrant terminators. Yeah, good old tyrant terminators. They're, they're created that way for a reason. Oh, they're, so they're fucking best. That is the Thramas campaign system. So Miles, having gone through it all, what do you reckon? That's so simple to use, and you can bolt it into everything. Uh, yeah, really, really. Uh, it, it's something that you can explain. Yeah, because we all go through these campaign phases in our lives that we want to run one. Uh, and then you create this 15 page document that nobody reads and nobody exploits mm. during the campaign. This, it could be explained five minutes before the campaign even begins. And you just dive straight into it. Uh, the, the missions seem fun, uh, they add all wrinkles into the usual way. So, when you think of like a usual, uh, your usual list, uh, I don't really take much anti-tank or it's very limited, but they take on greater significance if you're playing, like if you have to destroy buildings, for example. Yeah, just uh, nice takes on familiar themes. What I quite like is the fact it does seem to be promoting you to taking troops a lot mm, as well. And, and varied armies as well. Yeah. You can't just do your, your gun line army because a lot of these objectives are in the centre, so you have to be moving. It's, it's promoting movement, and you need troops to secure the objectives. And you can't just do that with vehicles and so on. So it's promoting a much more infantry-based game, and it seems to also be promoting a variety of points levels for those games as well. I think this is... Um, it's, it's another example of a really 
simple yet deep system um, that a lot of these campaign systems um, that are a hallmark of of, of the black books, uh, starting with uh, with Crusade. Um, I don't like the character. Uh, I don't like the idea of the character death table without there being a character advancement table. I just don't like the idea of character deaths uh, generally, um, unless you know it's narratively uh, there's a point for it in the narrative. Um, but I really like about all these systems. The number one thing is what kills campaigns. What is the number one thing that kills campaigns? No endpoint. Mm. Um, I'll go further. People don't play their games. Like one yeah. person drops out and the whole thing collapses. Um, and and all of these systems, including this one and and the Crusade system, isn't dependent on everybody playing their games. Because you'll have fifth, uh, fourteen people. I'll use a, an even number. Fourteen people interested at the beginning. Um, after the first round, only eight have played their games. In a lot of old campaign systems, the whole thing collapses, doesn't work anymore. But in these systems, it doesn't matter who fucking played their games. If half the people drop out, it doesn't matter. We could still move on to the next round. And if they come back, they come back. Because it's more like communal points rather than uh, mm. everybody uh, um, having to score their own thing. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think all these campaigns do a good job of taking, uh, of dealing with that 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 problem and it's not anybody's fault often you know like you know my kid was sick i can't play my game this or that but it it is the one thing that kills campaigns more than anything else and 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 this one i think it's it's nuanced it's uh very flexible i i think it's it's one of the best ones they've done i would take this as a basis bolt on a bunch of stuff from crusade and uh from crusade from uh from conquest and and run with it like yes. I, I think it's a brilliant system absolutely i think i think conquest is still the best campaign system they've produced in all the black books but it takes a lot of work and a lot of management a to set it up and keep it maintained i think this campaign system would be brilliant yep. for just a weekend throwdown with friends you, yeah, you yeah. do this three trackers yeah. just follow three trackers you're good yeah mm-hmm. You know, you could just get friends together, you know, end of end of pandemic celebration. Let's get loads of people together at wherever, local game store or book a haul out or whatever, and let's just work through the Thramas campaign. And you can make it as simple or as complicated as you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This was the first of our, um, I don't know how many parts we're going to do. We're going to do several uh, um, of our autumn of campaigns. I, I think we can just end with one thing. Play fucking campaigns. A lot of people don't fucking play these and they skip over them. And we kind of did too. <laughs> but play campaigns. They're fun. Get some friends together. Get it organized. Play campaigns. It is the best part of the hobby. Yeah, painting is no. the best part of the hobby. <laughs> Fuck off. Campaigns, bud. You create your story. You build it. I, I agree. I think campaigns are where it's at. You just need to have everyone who taking part is invested in it, which I think is yeah. Keep it keep it short burn. But yes, the ideal game situation with your painted army is a narrative is a campaign. Yes. Very diplomatic. Thank you, Dara. Paint your armies, play campaigns. Oh, that should be our tagline. Yeah. <laughs> it should be catchphrase. It's because that's is how that... you build your narrative. Like you see, forge your narrative. You can't do that sitting in like sitting on your ass with, with on your computer. You gotta build that on the field of battle but anyways um that was uh i guess part one of our fall of of our autumn of campaigns so we were gonna do fall of campaigns it sounds like fucking campaigns are like collapsing 
um, of our autumn of campaigns, uh, the Thramis system. And uh, we'll be right back for Tales of Heresy. The Prophecy of the One-Eyed King. A mountain looms above you, wreathed in morning cloud. Crags claw upwards, grasping towards a blood-red light at its summit. The sky is ablaze and reflects the mountain's anger as it casts down flame from above. It is troubled, wounded by those who tried to put it asunder. It rages, and its wrath is terrible to behold. A bleak mood is upon you, a hollow mantle that bears more weight than a curse. Your bare feet are blistered and bloody, for you have walked many leagues across the cutting rock of your death world. It has not been forgiving, but your journey is slowly reaching its end, its conclusion closer with every crimson impression you leave behind you. Scarred peaks rise to blood at the sun, though the heat of that glowering orb is still merciless, stealing breath, drawing out life until nothing remains but a dusty carcass. At the hell-stoked foothills, you begin your ascent. Cinder and hot ash sear your feet, but you barely feel it. Hand over hand, the climb is tough, but you are driven beyond the concerns of fatigue. Your mind is a dense, dark pool from which you know you will not resurface. Your body will obey, despite the screaming agony in your limbs, to which you are blind, deaf, and dumb. You rise with the numbness and monotony of a corpse given life after death, for are you not merely flesh-wrapped despair, your weary bones responding to the last vestiges of your will? From the summit you hear a rumble to eclipse the crash of oceans at full swell, a thunderous bellow from the deep earth that echoes across peak and crag. And as your eye is drawn to the burgeoning fire glow above, you see a fissure in the flank of the mountain. Heat and earth blood issue from within this crack. The trailing wisps of smoke entice your enfeebled mind, so blighted by a sun's incomparable sorrow. Above you, the rumble of the mountain's displeasure grows into a roar. Does its anguish resonate with your own, an empathic frequency that has somehow aligned rock and flesh in grief-stricken sympathy? Fire rises, soaring upwards in a burning pillar that taints sky, sun, and cloud with its fury. Desperation seizing your dead man's limbs, you struggle for the fissure, discovering a cleft wide enough to admit your body. And as the heavens weep tears of flame, you enter the mountain to find your sanctuary and your doom. The last image of your existence is obscured by a pyroclastic cloud until eventually nothing remains but a shadow and a memory. All right, welcome back to Tales of Heresy. Today's Tale of Heresy is finally, finally, Death Fired by Nikon. We have, uh, we, we thought we had already done it years ago. Turns out we skipped it by accident. And uh, then uh, we've got to put it off for two months because we had a, 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 a bunch of uh, packed episodes and, and then um, a little bit of a break, something of a break in October. So um, yeah, we're, we're back to talk about Deathfire. Does anybody have a vision synopsis of this? I, I, I have a two-word synopsis. Go on, let's hear yours first. Yeah. The Odyssey. Hmm? Yeah. And it's not yeah, it even works. subtle. Uh, so. It's not so. And we talked about some. We've compared um, Ruin Storms to the Odyssey as well, didn't we? So there's clearly a large Greek element gone ahead. I was going to say Dad's acting weird. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I would say the seven stages of grief. Oh, not bad. Yeah. Oh, you can tell who's the lit expert here, can't we? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that's why I thought he was going to go with uh, the Odyssey. Okay, so again, um, this is um, once we finished RuneStorm, we re- we thought that we were like fully caught up, like we'd done all the books before RuneStorm uh, over the last like five years, and and um, so uh, we want to start with the uh, we want to get to Old Earth and then do Board of Flames, so we do the Salamander's Ark. Um, uh, in because uh, we find our, our, our salamanders friends, um, um, not friends that are literally salamanders, unless that's your pet. Uh, but uh, our salamanders friends don't get enough love, so we thought we'd do like uh, you know, um, we do the salamanders arc and 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 discuss it, and then we realized we never did Deathfire. I feel bad about that one. Uh, so we're fi- we're finally getting to it. But where where is this? Since we we, we sort of we're bouncing back uh, back to a little bit earlier uh, in the story, so. Uh, when we did RuneStorm, we talked about we were ending the we were ending the uh, Imperium Secundus uh, storyline, and then we discussed it kind of like as a whole. But this is in the Imperium Secundus storyline. Uh, thankfully, not directly. Um, it's not. It's not. It doesn't advance the story that much, but it does explain. Um, it does end the the, the fact that Vulcan uh, is on uh, McCrag. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it ends the Salamander section of Imperium Secundus, doesn't it? But it doesn't yeah. add anything to the actual Imperium Secundus. It, it's more of a setting rather than a storyline included yeah, as part of that. So, um, because, yeah, like you were saying, the Salamanders are the, for, the Forgotten Legion, aren't they? They are the Forgotten Loyalist Legion, even more so than traditionally the White Scars, because White Scars, Scars clearly have a much more major role, like, we saw seeing Warhawk, for example, which we'll save for another later episode. But this is, I don't know about you guys, but Death 5 for me feels like part one of a trilogy. It feels like a scene setter. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it, 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 it's still an interesting story. Um, so I guess when this kicks off, uh, um, I guess we'll go somewhat chronologically because I don't think there's any, uh, I don't think we need to go thematically. Um uh, essentially, you have uh, Numion, who we, we last saw in Vulcan Lives, right? Well, yeah, the last mm-hmm. we saw of him was yeah. uh, a nuclear fire. Yeah, a nuclear fire. Well, he survived, and uh, he's presently being uh, tortured on a word bearer's uh, torture ship. It's interesting, isn't it? The Salamanders are one of the most tortured legions, because Kurz has a lot of fun with Vulcan himself. Yeah. And Numion is on a um, word bearers. So, you know, they do seem to be tortured a lot, the salamanders. It does seem to fit a lot with their ethos. Yeah, it's one of those classic tropes in, I'm sorry to bring this up, but I have to use my literature degree somewhere. Uh, one of those classic tropes in literature that you reveal nobility through suffering. Uh, it even has a very sort of like cult, uh, Christian overtone to it. Uh, I mean, the suffering of Christ redeeming mankind. I'm wondering well, if... The, if you could detect any elements of that running throughout this. No, I agree with you. And I do think that's a key feature of the Salamander's Legion is they are very focused on self-sacrifice. That That yeah. is one of their, their key tenets. So I don't know if you've, um, if you look back in the Black Books of their um, mm. pre-Primark pre um, background, and if you read the Vulcan Primark book, it really dwells on the fact that the Salamander's will hold on to all costs and they will win battles just because they outlast them. Not, not in the same way as Death Guard. Death Guard, you know, have pride themselves in outfighting their enemy and lasting longer. Salamanders will put themselves into stupidly dangerous situations in order to win. And <laughs> sacrifice is very much a key part of this trilogy, isn't it? Absolutely. The, uh, uh, them and the Iron Hands. But I think the Iron Hands, are it's more of a question of, of, of vengeance of revenge 
where the salamanders really are a question of, you know, I guess, uh, uh, stoicism and, and, and resilience. Yeah, I think Iron Hands is much more vengeance and martyrdom, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they destroy themselves. I mean, where you see at the White Scar arc, they keep themselves pure as much as possible as a legion because they have their focal head, they have reassurance, they, they have guidance, whereas the Iron Hands completely fall apart after they Primarch's killed uh, because of their ethos, and they change dramatically. Yeah, I've always liked uh, uh, the one part about the Iron Hands. Uh, yeah, uh, you, you, you know, they obviously they're the they're the first Primarch that dies. I mean, until then, there was a question of whether Primarchs could die. Um, oh, we're going to get emails about that because what happened to this first, uh, sorry, second and third? Oh, no, 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 second no, 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 eleven. Yeah, besides besides those, obviously, yeah, um, they're, but, locked, they're locked up in terror. But there's a, there's a part there's a part in Betrayer, not in Betrayer, in um, oh, first Butcher's, heretic. No, in Butcher, Butcher's Nails, where um, like Angron and uh, um, come. No, Angron and fucking uh, what the fuck is What the hell's wrong with me? I'm editing that out. Um, it's been a rough week. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a whole there's there's a conversation with Angron and, and Lorgar where um, I think it was Lorgar that that actually wonders is like whether it's even possible for for us to die. And then Angron was like, "We can die." Uh, Ferris died, um, and and so I think there 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 was that 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 question. But I don't know. Obviously, it has nothing to do with the second and eleventh. But um, yeah, the the Iron Hands got hit hard. But I, I love the storyline of how they recover and and how uh, especially Medusin, how Medusin sort of organizes a a, a um, uh, uh, organizes the, the the a new line of defense. This is something that that, that comes up in the early Heresy, like Medusin essentially uh, organizing um, a massive uh, a wall of, of of defenses uh, to block uh, the, the the drive to terror. It doesn't work, but still pretty uh, yeah, pretty impressive. And what happens to him? He's betrayed by his own legion. Okay, that's fair. It's in the next book. No, that's in um, the Shattered Legions anthology. But uh, anyways, uh, the Salamanders, yeah, I think there's there's really a... I think you're entirely right. There's like a suffering um, uh, uh, storyline. There's a resilient storyline. Um, and there's a redemption storyline because they kind of have to redeem themselves by bringing uh, Vulcan back to Nocturne. Yeah, it's laying the body to rest. It's honoring the yeah. body. It's it's very Homeric in nature. That's what I said. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, so, but but when we start the storyline, what, what we get is, or when we start the story, you have uh, Numion. Uh, Numion. Is it Numion? It's Numion. Yeah, Numion. You have Numion, who's uh, being uh, 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 tortured, but. Um, and of course, you have you know Vulcan. You know he, he refuses to believe that Vulcan's dead, um, which of course is a le- it's legitimate because he Vulcan very much lives. Um, but uh, they remember uh, that was a phrase for a while. Um, I think so. Vulcan lives. Whenever you went into a uh, Salamander's forum, or whenever you mentioned Vulcan, it would be that goddamn phrase coming <laughs> at you. Uh, well, you know, it's it, it's everybody sh- should have their catchphrase for the Salamanders. It's Vulcan lives, and um, for 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 Darren and I, it's uh, from Iron Comes Strength. You know, we we, we will have did it. Nothing wrong. The the orc the the orcs are fought. Orc players are hilarious. Like that's the best part about those like big tournaments, like Adepticon. Uh, whenever uh, games start, all the orc players start like wh- whying. 
um, which got respect. Or Ear We Going, that's another... Uh, uh, yeah. You got to make it fun. S- Sanguinius is a pretty good one. Wabba-laba-dub-dub. <laughs> if you know, you know. Anyway. <laughs> I worry about Blood Angel players. Anyway, back, <laughs> back to Deathfire. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, and but he, he, he doesn't stay there long because he gets uh, rescued by the Ultramarines. So, um, um, good, but it's good not on just them. any Ultramarine, is it? This, this it's quite a key Ultramarine that he gets rescued by. Yeah, he gets um, um, the, the red marked, yeah. And he had well, because that's um, Aenid Thiel, isn't it? And yes, who really took no, no fear by storms, and he was quite a key character in that. And it's nice for him to turn up again. But once again, it's interesting that he's on the fringe, isn't he? He's not a standard ultramarine. Um, you know, he's he's not playing by the normal ultramarine rules in that he's willing to use some dodgier tactics than standard ultramarine is. Well, he's on a mission of 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 of, of, of causing carnage. Um, he's there to just attack uh, the, the traitors wherever he can find them. Uh, this is an organized uh, giant offensive. He's on, um, it's like uh, the, what are they called? The Desert Rats from World War II? Yeah, they're just there to disrupt. Yeah, just disrupt. So, yeah, they get rescued and, um, well, uh, he winds up getting out, but he's not sure exactly what's going on. And, and then, <laughs> like Numion, I mean, uh, he's not exactly sure what's happening, but he manages to get out. And it's just, uh, and of course, first instinct is like, well, I'm going to go kill uh, the fuck's his name. Um, yeah, he's got to go kill Zenith Soul, who was uh, who was his torturer. So, um, and and the Ultramarines realize this. They realize, oh my god, like okay, uh, um, there's there's definitely a loyalist legionary on this ship. Um, where would you go uh, if if you had just you know gotten out? And it's this guy, well, I'd go kill, I'd, I'd go kill the captain. It's like, all right, we're we're going to the bridge. But uh, interestingly enough, the uh, the word bearer uh, Zenith, uh, Zenith Soul um, does not. You know, fight to the death or anything like that. He lets himself get captured pretty easily. Not at all suspicious. No, and I don't know about you guys. I, I normally like characterization of word bearers, uh, apart from Erebus. Um, but this guy just comes across as a real stereotypical frothing word bearer. Mm-hmm. He, did, yeah. he didn't come across as one for nuance. Right? Not not like um, Zaydu Layak in the later parts of the, the, the Heresy series or the early part of the Siege of Terror. Or, or even Erebus in some parts. This guy, Zenith Soul, just comes across as a very stereotypical word bearer and, and doesn't really have anything. I don't want to use the word redeeming about him because redemption and word bearers is a bit of a dodgy subject anyway. But nothing you really latch onto. He doesn't have anything you really hate, but he doesn't have anything you really like, like we did with Argyll Tell. So he, he just. He hasn't got a point of view. Yeah. Uh, he's just like a very one-note character. He's a uh, no. I'd love to know when the Dark Knight was released in relation to this, because years there was and years, like a decade before. Oh God, really? Okay, uh, yeah, because I, I, there's a thing in movies, especially where the bad guy would intentionally get caught. I'm wondering if that was why. Well, the, well the, why the, he was brought in here? The Dark Knight came out in like 2006 or 2007, something like that. Jesus, that long ago? Yeah, it's been a while, eh? That was like 15 years ago. Oh, I know. God. Feel old yet? <laughs> I'm 35 next week. Constantly. That's nothing. <laughs> I, I feel old saying it. I, I mean, just the length of time it takes to say 35. It's like I'm nearly 36 after saying that. You have like four more years of being mid-30s. 
I'm, th- <sighs> I'm 39 and I still say mid thirties. Well, currently my wife's 35 at the moment. So I'm, I'm technically a year younger than her at the moment. Look at you. Sorry, older woman. De- Anyways, death fire. <laughs> yeah. We've deviated quite a few times. This is going to be fun edit. Let's uh, give myself more work. All right. Um, so what the fuck were you saying just a second ago? What was relevant? Uh, well, Dark yeah, yeah, Dark thing, yeah. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is the word bearers are using the dodgy elements for warp, but the old Marines also prepared for that, aren't they? They, they they've learned from Kalth, or certainly a uh, feel in the red marks have learned from Kalth, but they don't take any precautions against it. Yeah, that's true. So, like when they do capture Zenith's soul, they don't make many concessions they keep him in his power armor i mean certainly the first thing you do with an astartes <laughs> yes. prisoner is get rid of the power armor wouldn't you but no they keep him in it yeah this so, seems uh this seems like amateur hour there uh red, uh, red should, we, should we take his weapons away nah i'll be fine what is he gonna do he's, it's like he it's like when cool. they're surprised that like uh there's there's another story where um uh, um um sevatar uh, escapes from the uh, from the invincible reason. I, it might not have been Sevatar, actually. It was uh, some, some. No, it is Sevatar. It was Sevatar. Yeah. And just just yeah. spitting at the lock, and they didn't think about this since they all have acid acid spit, <laughs> and no one figured out that you could do this. Like they, no one's thought mm. about it. But at least they did strip him of his armor. Yeah, and they bound him at the very least. Yeah. So come on, you know, at least there were some precautions. Well, the old Marines are just like, oh no, we'll, we'll leave him his armor on. I'm sure he'll be honourable and stay a prisoner. Yeah, he's given, he, you know, he's given us his word. We wouldn't want him to be uncomfortable. No, he's only a torturer. His job is to torture people. But we certainly who, wouldn't want him to be uncomfortable. Destroyed one of our major planets. Why? Well, so not, just charismatic. Not just <laughs> so charismatic. Uh, so they drag his ass back to McCrag, um, where uh, I guess uh, Numion. Um, um, Meets up with the rest of the uh, the uh, salamanders uh, survivors, and there's not many, is there? I mean, there's this is one for key points to recognise here. There's about thirty yep. total salamanders, but there's only a few really key ones we spend a lot of time with. And what's interesting is there's already some tension on that planet with the salamanders, and well, certainly at least Gilliman, isn't there? There's already a bit of tension about Vulcan's body. Yeah, well, okay, Vulcan is lying in state. Uh, just to, 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 to remind people what's going on at this point of the story, um, this is after Sanguinius is made uh, emperor of uh, Imperium Secundus. Um, false, Vul- false emperor. False, yeah, yeah, t- yeah, technically. That's a good point. I never even thought about that, but definitely he's false emperor. Uh, 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 or anti-emperor. I was surprised they didn't go with anti-emperor, like to go with like a- the anti-pope. Remember that there were two popes in the Middle Ages? Puppet emperor. Don- dancing on Gilliman's strings. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, Sanguinius is false emperor, and I think uh, uh, um, the lion is Lord Protector, and Gulliman is Master Manipulator as usual. Uh, he has all the Excel tables, um, and <laughs> I guess the Salamanders. This is sat poorly with the Salamanders. Salamanders, I think, are one of the groups that want to go on the counteroffensive. It's. I think it's all my also a case because. We need to backtrack to an earlier book, don't we? We need to backtrack to um, which one is it? Because oh. Vulcan appears quite oddly, doesn't he? Because he falls from orbit. Oh yeah. Oh, that's uh, Unremembered Empire, the first book we ever did. Yeah, he he, fall, he falls from orbit because of his uh, um, um, he, he gets oh, out because his weird ability, right? 
Well, no, it's his, it's his hammer. His hammer has a teleport homer. And uh, when oh, he got out fucking of... Line. Yeah, I know. He, he got out of the, uh, of the Nightfall. Uh, he managed to escape Conrad Kurz, and then he triggers... Uh, his uh, teleportation hammer and the teleportation uh, hammer follows the uh, beacon at Pharos. So, and it brings him to McCrag and then he falls from the sky. Um, yeah. You could tell, you could tell Nick Kime likes Marvel, right? Oh, dude. And that, uh, the whole of, of Unremem- Unremembered Empire just feels like a, a superhero story with just a bunch of uh, uh, yeah. superheroes like destroying New York. But anyway, but also, what we also need to remember of that is when he landed from orbit, he was all burnt up and horribly a bit crispy, but he oh, yeah. healed up, remember? And it was John Grammaticus who stabbed him with a piece of a fulgurant <laughs> that puts him into torpor. Well, he hulked out on, on McCrag. Yeah. Uh, because uh, he goes for Curtis, doesn't he? Yeah, his, his body <laughs> heals. It just so happens Kurz is there too. <laughs> Fuck it. Like, we read that book Plant, so long ago. explosives in the frame room. So yeah, Kurz is there by then because it's after the Ramus Crusade. Like Vulcan must have been lost in the war for three or four years. I never even thought of that. But yeah, he was in there for a while because the whole Theramus Crusade happens between Vulcan lives and Unremembered Empire. That's weird. Anyways, uh, so that probably is one of the things that messed up Vulcan's brain. So Vulcan... Uh, hulks out, uh, and and eventually John, yeah, John Grammaticus has the Fulgurite. The Fulgurite is like a spear that can kill a god, um, and he, I guess, is convinced that this will. D- did he think that it was going to cure Vulcan before he stabbed him and then well, killed him? It, it's the odd one, isn't it? It's what the um, cabal, the, the cabal it, it's were um, kind it's of ambiguous, right? Yeah, yeah, because the, because the Fulgurite Vulcan was the key. Yeah, the Fulgurite is a god, like you say, god can weapon, but it does seem to do something on perpetuals as well, because John is always a bit twitchy around the Fulgurite. So there's all they almost like the Cabal almost use it as a, a test run to see if it will work on Horus against Vulcan. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it, it winds up essentially killing uh, killing uh, Vulcan. Um, Poor Vulcan. Ish. Or does it? Yeah. So Vulcan is like, so anyways, uh, th- I think it was important to go back and try to figure out where we are in the story because it's been a bit. Um, we talked about Unremembered Empire six years ago. Um, so, uh, uh, um, and they said the show wouldn't last. No one said that. Um, uh, so he's lying in state. And yeah, the, the salamanders would prefer to bring him back to Nocturne, which is, you know, the the... Uh, I guess the traditional like funeral rite to go back into the the not Mount Doom but the the uh, some other Mount fire Doom equivalent Mount Doom Mount Deathfire Mount Deathfire thank you it's the name of the book <laughs> I love it when they do that in movies um, so they want to bring him back and uh, uh, essentially Gulliman and again this comes back to uh, conversations I think I misspoke earlier but like a, a conversation with Gulliman that Gulliman is like no we are the successor empire. There's no way to get through the rune storm. Um, we have to sort of marshal our forces, uh, um, uh, um, uh, fill out all the Excel spreadsheets so that we like make sure that we have, you know, everything, all the logistics, all, you know, we, we can't go on the counteroffensive yet. So everybody has to kind of stay here. And that's the whole point of Unremembered Empire is trying to convince uh, Sanguinius of this. So they're saying the same thing to uh, the salamanders and the salamanders are being a little bit, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, uh, testy. Yeah, because they're not they're not being given a ship. Either. I mean, they've literally put um, Vulcan in state. They've dressed him up in one of Gilliman's spare suits of armor. Um, they've put is it Ford uh, Foe Breaker? 
The hammer? Uh, forge. Forge breaker. Forge breaker. Forge breaker? No, Forge Baker is a uh, uh, is a Perturabo's. Uh, um, Fuck. Uh, okay. Anyway, so I think it is Forge Breaker. God yeah. damn it! How are we qualified to have this show? With whatever the hammer, they've, they've put his hammer in his hands. It's, it's basically Dawnbringer. Like, it's Dawnbringer. Dawnbringer. There we go. So it's basically like that scene in Conan, where Conan goes into the the, the barrow, the tomb where the sword is, and you've got that body in state holding his weapon. Yeah. And so they basically put Vulcan on display, is what it comes down to. And the Salamanders aren't very happy with that, are they? But during the meeting the Salamanders have with the, uh, the Triumvirate, Vulcan's body disappears, doesn't it? And it turns up on one of the ships in orbit. And they're trying to explain it away. They're trying to justify and you know, the, the logical ultramarines are saying, well, it's down to his teleport homer, isn't it? It's down to that. And the Salamanders... A little bit more spiritual about it, and they think it is Vulcan is moving. At least they're not necessarily saying he's alive. Believe Vulcan that, moves, don't, <laughs> but don't they also think that Conrad Kerr stole it? <laughs> that is a viewpoint put forward, I think, isn't it? Yeah, because Conrad Kerr is still point, running around. They don't know where he is. Yeah, which is a Such dangerous a thing, thing <laughs> on McCrag. It's very dangerous when you don't know where Conrad Kerr's is. And yeah, someone's like, oh, maybe Conrad stole Vulcan, which is a very Conrad thing to do. Yeah. But it's all right. The line I just see that. It. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, he doesn't. Like, the line doesn't kill uh, Conrad Curse. Could have, probably, but anyways. Uh, so, yeah, so the, the, the find Vulcan's body. It's two chapters of just running around trying to find uh, the body. They, they find him in. And for the very spiritual uh, salamanders, especially uh, Numian, um, this is a sign, as you, as you said, that 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 Vulcan is not uh, quite dead. To put it a certain way, you could even say that Vulcan lives. Uh, and uh, so they're convinced that they need to bring Vulcan back to uh, Mount Deathfire, um, which I guess is a funerary rite, but also like a, I guess a resurrection rite. If I understand. Yeah, isn't that one of the ideas they come up with, that uh, if they throw him into uh, the, the volcano, is it one of their legends that if he's placed in the volcano, he yeah. will resurrect? That, that, that's one of their beliefs. But did you pick up on the name of his ship he transported himself onto? No. Which ship is it? The Charybdis. Oh, well, that's uh, Greek as hell. Well, absolutely. And, it, you know, that that's Homeric. Is That's... You know, Directly well, in the Odyssey, isn't it? Yes, yeah, Asylum mm-hmm. and Charybdis are the two sea monsters, right? That are just south of Sardinia or something? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I didn't even... Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and also the ship that they wind up leaving on. But anyways, we'll get back to that. Uh, so, yeah, this is pretty Homeric. Uh, someone was having fun. Uh, Nick Kime was having some fun with that. Um, yeah, somebody has read the Odyssey and somebody wants other people to know They've read the Odyssey. <laughs> 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 this is just some. Uh, this is someone. Someone signaling that they have a a, a universe, a university education, uh, yeah, a classical is, liberal exactly education. It. Yes. Tell, tell I, me you read the Odyssey without reading, without telling me you read the Odyssey. Uh, excuse me. Have you read it in the original Greek? Yeah. <laughs> Poser. It's always better in the original Klingon, is what I say. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. N- name three of Homer's works. Go on. In, in order. Yeah. <laughs> Are you fucking gatekeeping us, Miles? 
I am absolutely gatekeeper. Yeah, you can wear the t-shirts all you like. So yeah, uh, uh, they believe that they need to bring um, uh, Vulcan back, and that winds up, you know, that's pretty much the story. Um, um, I think we can end it there. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the but then it's it's trying to convince uh, Gollum in the line. Essentially, Gollum is really dead set against any of his resources. Um, and I, I, I think he pretty much views everybody as resources. He, 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 he's against any of his resources um, leaving McCrag to essentially, as far as he's concerned, just waste themselves in the rune storm. You know, he's thinking long term that if you're going to have a counterattack, if you want to retake terror, it's going to be years. Um, yep. You know, marshal resources, you know, fill the Excel spreadsheets, do, do, do your thing. Um, and and so he, he has to. So Bumian, um, who is the highest ranking salamander because he was part of the Pyre Guard. He has to convince, um, I guess, both Gulliman and the Lion. He doesn't meet. Hold on, he doesn't meet Sanguinius, does he? No, he meets all the triumph. Yeah, he meets all the whole triumph. But Sanguinius, because he's only a puppet, doesn't say anything. Uh, Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. He's just there to look pretty. Isn't Numian the first captain? You couldn't have the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the highest ranking. He was like second in command of the the Salamanders. So. but they still have like a whole conversation about it. Uh, it it's not like um, uh, Numian just telling everybody what to do. It's still a very, uh, uh, I don't want to say democratic, but like at least open discussion. Um, but everybody, uh, the Salamander essentially decide that, yeah, you have to go back to Nocturne, find a way through the Runestorm, and they believe that they can do it. Um, but how do they convince uh, the, 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 the Triumvirate to, or Gulliman and, 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 and the Lion to let them go? It's like an appeal to like a sense of honor, right? Like, you know, this is, we have to do this. It is, but, and, and it's also the fact that the body moves by itself. Well, that's another factor, yeah. So, you know, there, there's a couple, there's a couple of facts, but they, they do appeal to the, the sense of brotherhood, don't they? They do appeal to that, like you say, the sense of honor of, like, you know, he's dead. What, what did you, what kind of hold you have over him? Um, they do say you're on your own, which is nice, isn't it? <laughs> you know, off you go with, with our brother's body. Good luck. I, I thought this would be a brilliant point to sort of like bring in some uh, uh, cultural commentary here about imperialism. Well, you can't take our artifacts, bro. You can't keep them. They're ours. Are you trying to appropriate <laughs> them? Like, no, we're not. No, no, you can t- take take everything. No, no, we ain't getting embroiled in that. No, no. You, we, 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 L- we lots of shades your, there. We must keep your ancient artifacts for safekeeping. Exactly, because yeah. you can't be trusted. You can't be trusted to look after these precious artifacts. And I can imagine Gilliman did like hacking off bits of building and bringing them back to McCrag to host his private galleries. Yeah, I didn't even, uh, I haven't thought about that, but there's definitely, uh, I'm sure there's some um, um, questionably sourced artifacts on McCrag. There's bits of monarchy on there. Yeah. But there's another uh, there's something going on here that we uh, that we should touch on. So uh, um, um, before they depart, um, there's another prisoner, not just uh, Zenith Soul. Zenith Zenith Soul is on uh, McCrag. Now he's a prisoner there. Uh, but there's another uh, important prisoner on uh, on McCrag. Another wordbearer prisoner. Our boy Narek. Narek is uh, Narek is here. Or is he? Or is he? Yeah. Yeah. Because Narek's personality disappears quite quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So Narek, do they bring him onto the ship? Yeah, of course they do. 
You bring him on the ship, yeah, okay. So, you know, because he's another prisoner. We'll take him with us. That'll be fine. Why did they take him with us? I I don't remember this for some reason. I don't think it's really clarified why. I think it's just one of these odd plot points that turns up and it's like, and now we must take this person back as well. Because he reveals himself, doesn't he? He he reveals himself to be um, Caspian Hecht, a knight errant. Now, come on. Knight errants. This, for me, raises an issue anyway, because if he reveals himself to be a knight errant, that's an indication that Malkador is still alive because he's acting on Malkador's orders. And oh, Malkador yeah. would only be alive if the Emperor is alive. And would they understand what a knight errant was? Yeah, because that's all post fan, isn't it? It's all quite deep in. So Didn't, didn't Gero go all the way to Calth to rescue, what's his name? Yeah, that's how they get the um, Ultramarine Psyker, isn't it? Yeah, the Psyker, yeah. Rubio. Uh, Which is... Rubio. How? Oh, man. I I, I didn't like that one. I didn't like that one. I didn't like when he goes to get uh, Loken. I wasn't a fan of them. But most of the Garrow stories are actually fantastic. But, like, they're... I I don't know. Like, recruiting your, like, A-team is... How the hell did they get to Calf? And why can't more stuff come to Calf? And if you know what's going on to Calf, send reinforcements. This is it, but but it all holds. It also another. It's another hole for the uh, Imperial Secundus, isn't it? Because if the Knight Errants are getting through, and clearly they are, we've got Garrow and we've got Hecht now. Why is not news of that the Emperor is alive and fighting getting through to the old, getting through to the Primarchs? Yeah, let's not belabor this point. Um, I, I, yeah. I <laughs> this might not be the strongest part of, of this book, but otherwise, really, yeah, this, fun this book. is a thread we shouldn't pick. I don't know. Hit us up in the comments. <laughs> Let us know uh, what the hell you think is going on, because um, uh, one of our more knowledgeable and 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 uh, uh, smart uh, listeners might have a better idea of how this all fits together. Because uh, yeah, we're sure. struggling. Uh, we're struggling with this, anyways. Um, so, but Narek, okay. So they, they bring Narek with them, and as they're like departing the system, turns out is it really Narek? Oh wait, uh, yeah, it's, it's not. It's not really Narek, or it is Narek. Oh, it was Zenit's soul. It was Zenit's. No, it was Zenit's soul, and he, he became Narek. No, no. Narek they try to kill pain. Narek. They try to kill Narek because Zenit's soul. Uh, okay, well, we got to go back for a second. Zenit's uh, Zenit's soul. Uh, like he's being. Uh, 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 but before this whole thing. Oh, god damn it! Am I gonna fucking really like edit this part? Because remember, they, there's, 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 no, there's keep a prison it break. All right, uh, we made a mistake. Okay, so before all that. Uh, as far as the Narek uh, point is concerned, we find out why Zenit Sol allowed himself to be captured so easily. He, he His job is to kill Narek. So they're all in the same prison complex on McCrag, and he kind of demons out. As word bearers are want yeah. to do. And you would have thought they would have learned from Kalth, wouldn't you? You would have thought. Um, but you don't throw out the old policy manuals. They were following the policy manual. And if they... It, 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 the Ultramarines, like, they're a bureaucracy. They're, eventually, they will have a new uh, uh, policy manual, which will take these, in, th- these things into account. But it has to go through the proper uh, channels. Um, I'm pretty sure they have a committee working on it. Yeah, but this also comes under the Dark Angels because they're in charge of security. Yeah, I, I can't explain that one. Yeah, so, you know, you would have thought the Lion would have just bound this one down, you know, but... You know, you've got two of Legions there who are quite happy with librarians. You've got the Blood Angels who pushed the Librarius and the old Marines who started resurrecting the Librarius at Cal. You would have thought it's a word barrier bearer 
Oh, we're going to stick him in. Yeah, we, we're going to stick him into a cell, which is proof against the warp. Yeah, it seems like an. Oversight. Do they understand? Do they understand enough for the warp to do to do this at this point? Well, they know the word bearers use the warp as a weapon. Of, of a very least, so the librarians would at least have a capacity to limit access to reward. Yeah, I suppose so. Oh. Well, Gulliman reinstates the librarians at Calf. He does it immediately. He realizes immediately that this is another weapon. So I, I, I don't know. Anyways, uh, he Zedat uh, 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 turns into, I guess, he becomes the the manifestation of, I think, the unburdened. Um, and uh, he goes to try to kill Narek, but uh, I think Narek's already gone by then. He doesn't get him. Yeah, I think Narek's, Narek's gone with the, uh, with the Talamanders by that point, hasn't he? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, um, so that didn't work out because he's also, he's looking for the Fulgurite. My understanding is that the word bearers, their, their main mission is to find the Fulgurite and they figure Narek has it. Or at least that they, they know where John Grammaticus is. Um, so actually, uh, it turns out Narek is back on the ship, uh, which is called what? The Charybdis. Uh, but the problem is Narek has no idea how he got there, and he has no idea um, who he is. He just kind of figures it out. At the end of this part, like the, uh, the part one of Deathfire, he sort of starts to figure out like uh, who he is. So what the fuck happened? Uh, it's very Part one is very much a scene setting and introducing characters yeah it's it? exposition it's, yeah, yeah it, it's very much backfill setting theme setting tone um it's really part two part three where the full ex the full extent of the odyssey comes to a front before so uh, i think that's pretty much I, I think that's good for part one i think we did a lot of exposition a lot of back and forth mainly because this is an older book that we thought we'd already done a while ago so uh, it's good to you know to, to remind us where we are uh, at this earlier uh, period. What's going on? Um, still, um, it, it's it's a good introduction. Good to see some old characters that we haven't seen in a little while, and 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 it's a lot of fun. I think there's a lot of like we're, we're confused about a couple of plot points, and it sounds like we're being negative, but I think uh, we might be just a uh, uh, just a bit confused. Uh, it, it it is a very enjoyable book. It's quite a tangled storyline, isn't it? There's, it's a bit tangled. There's a lot going on. Yeah, certainly yeah. in part one, there's a lot of threads being woven together, isn't there? Well, absolutely. Um, so I think we can I think we can call it here for part one of Deathfire. In the next episode, uh, we'll do part two where things really start moving. Um, again, I think you're right. There's a lot of um, there's just a lot of things that need to be you know uh, established before like the book can uh, can kick, kick in, and um, 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 it does it well. So we'll be uh, right back for uh, two week cup of challenge. Hobby challenge, 15th to the 29th of October. I'm pretty sure I've written something down here. Hopefully I have. I'm just having a little quick scroll through it. You know what? I'm going to discover it on my way. Darren, do you happen to remember what you did between the 15th and the 29th of October? Yeah, so for me, it, mine was finishing stuff off. That was a, a half-term week, so I, I was varnishing like crazy. So I managed to uh, finish the final batch of my Iron Warriors. So that's uh, the two groups of Havocs. I know JP's going to kick off now because they're not proper Havocs, but they are proper Havocs because they've got the upgrade sets on them. Uh, and a couple of Trenchlers. 
I've also finished the core of my Man of War Dwarf fleet, uh, and I had a small game of Alpha Strike, um, the, the quick play battle tech game with my son as well. So sweet. Oh my god. Not, not much, but little bits, little bits. All finish, finishing projects off, which is always nice. Uh, who won? Well, 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 um, who, 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 who are the sides? Uh, Inner Sphere versus Clans? Oh, no, no, no. It was Star League. So it was oh. SDLF versus uh, Draconis Combine. Right. So, Darren, uh, I, need, I need to learn this. So I, I'm, uh, I have a three-year-old. I need to ask a more seasoned father. Do you let them win games to build up their confidence or do you smash them to make them realize that life is hard? I wouldn't say smash them, but we've, <laughs> we've, but we've never just let them win. Never. Right, okay. So, because he, he, they need to learn, and you know, and they get, and he's got better over time. He's he learning the game, he's learning tricks, and but what he's got if, to be, yeah, gone. At, at three years old, he's already beating me. What do I do then? Do I bring in a ringer? If you, well, you, you change the game. <laughs> This is the kind of fatherly advice I need. Yeah, you, you change the game. You up the stakes. You change the game. <laughs> uh, JP, uh, what what the hell did you get up to? Yeah, I just the... gave me. I didn't do anything. <laughs> I did wall sections, apparently. So that was my joyful participation in the suffering of the world, uh, doing bits of ZM. Uh, I've come across this new product. Uh, it's realistic rust. It's basically iron filings that you drizzle on a miniature. Ooh. And you hit with an activator, which is salt water. Uh, so I've been experimenting with that when you put it on. So do, do you put that on before the paint? Do you put it on after the paint? And I've been uh, messing around with uh, a ZM board, trying to make it. Uh, but this stuff, it really does rust up quickly. So I found less is very much more with it. Uh, Rayo, should we see what our listenership have been up to? Let's do it. We have Gaz NZ, we Gaz, uh, assembling a massive Alpha Legion, Horus Heresy, True Scale army, and painting like crazy. Uh, there's no follow up to it. Oh, hold oh, no, on, there's th- anymore. Uh, no, hold on. There's um, there there's a couple. Okay, he did them all individually, so you just need to scroll down a bit. Yeah, no, okay. he's, he's got stuff laid down. Right, guys, I'll come back to you. I'll circle back to you, Steve Sandon. Some details left for these, but mostly done. And so gorgeous, gorgeous Titanicus Force. This is very on message at the moment because that oh. time of recording is the did- weekend of the traitor book release. And it's a rather good book. Corrupt Titans. Uh, they're going to come up in a later episode because JP and I are going to want to discuss them. Oh, we we're going to be talking about that for sure. Yeah, I need I need to check that. I need to ask how corrupt I can make my Titan. Okay, Simon Winter. Plus building lots of Templar brethren and brethren and Imperial Fist Termies. I feel like this is going to be a very broken segment. Uh, but that is an amazing Warmaster Titan you have there, standing rather proudly on a building. Uh, Sarah Elwood, I'm putting together some Mark III uh, through a Dettel wash, uh, so stripping them down to make a uh, make a Bolters, Bolters, and more Bolters Imperial Fist. Ah, to fight with my Angels of Terror. Nice. I mean, everybody needs gun pigs. Uh, Ed McBurney, moving house, so packed up and set back the whole hobby setup. But he has managed to do a uh, a glade, a wood elf glade lord riding a great eagle to fight against Tom Gould's rat people. Sweet. 
yeah, it looks freaking amazing. That's a good eagle. Is that is that a new? Is that uh, it's from Lord of the Rings? Oh, Lord I got of you. The Rings range. Yeah, it's amazing, amazing miniature. Really nice. Gas again doing Zen airbrush highlights. I dare say we'll hear more from you during this segment, uh, Gaz. Uh, David Carlin finish up painting a librarian. Yeah, that sweet is sweet ultramarine. That's yeah, great. I, I love the glowing effects in the runes. That, Wait, that's, that's not really ultramarine. Nice Hold on. Um, it's a Primaris. I think it's a Dark Angel. Yeah, I think so. That would make sense. Uh, David plays Dark I think, Angels. I think so. I'm not sure what chapter Legion it, it comes from. Uh, okay, Darren Winter, final batch of Iron Warriors. Very handsome. There. It, it's, it's always such a nice feeling, especially when you have a few hobby projects on at the same time to finish them off. Oh, feels like running the corner. Gaz, Gaz again. Uh, we have some rather nice Alpha Legion. Um, intercessors uh, i'm not sure what they call it from yeah intercessors uh so primaris marines uh and then we have wait, a contempt of dreadnought wait those are heavily converted those are not no they're yeah they're yeah. primaries they're primaries yeah they're primaries but they, yeah, kept, they converted yeah they converted yeah. sorry nice. I, I should preface that um and then lots of pre-shading uh and then oh more importantly wear the hoodie out uh, guys you're well very welcome here oh yeah those hoodies uh i i have I, I did an inventory recently i have like three hoodies left i think like oh, i need to buy a new one yeah keep one of those for me i've yeah. worn the shit out of my one it's all bobbly now i need to buy a new one yeah well you've had it for like four or five years uh, yeah and i've wear it, wore it practically every day yeah they're quality uh, hoodies so if you want one of the last so ones hit me up Yes, yes. Version one printing of them. Okay. Uh, James Phoenician Turner painted some Terminators. Saturnine pattern in uh, alternate heresy scheme. Looking very, very handsome. Uh, Jesus, that looks good. Yeah, they're amazing, aren't they? With oh, I think you've changed my. I think you've changed my mind about. Uh, oh about, yeah, uh, they Saturday. don't have like eggs anymore, do they? Oh well, like when when they're painted as well as James's are. Uh, maybe maybe I like them after all. Flip flop. Tanel Voltson, fan. I did achieve quite a bit, in my opinion. Painted up three Outrageous Squadron for Volka Fienrika. Uh, also painted a Wolfguard Battle Leader. Good. Then based all of them as well as my Repulsor that I finished last month. And finally painted a Greek Soldier for a local painting competition. Good God. You have been... Oh, wow. You've used the marble tutorial as well on the base. Absolutely freaking gorgeous, Tanel. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I'm loving those space wolves with uh, with the spears. Mm. Um, if you're gonna yeah, if you're gonna absolutely. put spe- if, if you if you're gonna get space wolves on 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 jet bikes, uh, give them spears. That looks great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Alex Self orcs the explanation mark, uh, <laughs> and then some uh, test model for a legion. I haven't decided on yet, but it looks very very nice. Uh, Arthur Alex, I did a bit of recording with him earlier uh, from our cousins at the death and betrayal podcast Good uh, people. bill Co- bill corax with a helmet oh yeah he told me a story about you gp but we'll leave that hanging in the air uh, bill corax with a helmet and started a drop pod uh, yes we've been painting that drop pod alongside one another we've decided that neither of us likes either teaching or learning about how to paint drop pods uh, justin gaskins I made an esoteric for my Betrayer era World Eaters Force, Word Bearer Force. Ooh. Figured keeping the Warhounds colors. Yes, they did have uh, some left over. It's poor, unfortunate creatures just waiting to die. Yeah, that looks awesome. That looks awesome, Justin. Uh, Tom Gould, more Skaven, specifically Storm Vermin. Oh, 
square bases. I miss you. Mike Fellhand, uh, who has recently learned how to sculpt. And my God, is he putting those abilities to good use? Uh, creating a command squad. Um, oh, veteran, sorry. And Jubal Khan, who is oh, a new looks, character. That looks awesome. From Warhawk. Yeah, gorgeous stuff. Wait till they painted. Philip Hansen. Uh, gang members, 15 to 19 for my Delac. I'm painting up some of those miniatures at the moment. The gorgeous, gorgeous miniatures. Love the book for them as well. Uh, Richard Nearer, Death Jesty to join Bloody Mama. Oh, dude, that's such a cool name for a Titan. Looking forward to them both getting corrupted in the new Trader book. Yeah, review. great looking Reavers. Love them. Yeah, review incoming. Uh, Keith Craycraft, uh, third Night Lord's Contemptor built and ready to paint very very nice dark scheme for them Anders Friedrichson sorry about that Vanguard 3 color challenge for my family uh, oh my god this looks awesome yeah you've put those three colors to good usage um, very nice and details on the pauldron for the king of onslaught non-metallic metal gold for the skulls and NMM on the trim and it looks absolutely spectacular as well uh, we have Benjamin Greaves, uh, who will be appearing on the show sooner rather than later, who is painting up some rather gorgeous flip-flaps for a mate. Yeah, uh, so these are the Custodes uh, Venatari? I think yeah, Venatari, the isn't it? Yeah. Flying dudes. Uh, yeah, they look absolutely freaking superb. Uh, Ezra Meyer, I hope I'm not too late to the party or just about squeeze in. I've been working on some Sat Satya 9 Contra car terminators for a little bit. Got started on decals, so they are super glossy right now. More oh, Satya terminators, no, JP. They look pretty good. They look pretty good. Oh. You guys I mean, are uh, you guys are really making me uh, making me rethink some of my uh, earlier uh, hot takes. And it's so appropriate for Iron Warriors as well to have that uh, armor mark. Oh, and then we finish off strong with James Phoenician Turner. With, I think it's the background from um, White Dwarf that he's used there. A, a Vindicator and Gut Ripper from the Dominion box set. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And that was the hobby challenge from the 15th to the 29th of October. Yeah. Those new orcs look pretty freaking good. Very classic, right? Yeah, I like it. Anyways. All right. So that was two cup challenge. Um so to uh, end the episode tonight, um, uh, uh, upon recommendation of Brother Steve from the powerful Dominus Knox, we're going to be playing a song from the equally powerful Soul Grinder, uh, also from Portland. This song is Piece of Chaos. Uh, so you get your full, um, your all your food groups. You get your 40K, you get your 30K, you get your Warhammer Fantasy. What are we, uh, what are we doing next episode? Uh, next episode is going to be a packed one, I think. Yeah, again, we need to getting a hobby segment somewhere kind of yep. skipped over him for the past couple some manner of painting oh, we'll be doing uh, the second part of death fire and we'll mm -hmm. also be talking about uh, the, the 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 big tournament uh which by the time it drops it's gonna have been like a while but like we're still we're still gonna talk about uh, the uh, uh the warhammer world tournament from i guess uh mid-october mm -hmm. yep and finding out that not all tournaments are the same so that's going to be... A oh, and we'll continue uh, talking about... Uh, I believe we're going to talk about uh, another uh, campaign system, right, Darren? Uh, yeah, that, that's to be decided which one. Though. It's definitely going to be a campaign system. Maybe we might look at the new freebie campaigns. We may look at the three that have come out so far as a collective. 
And then we're going to have to do the Trader Legions book. Oh, man, we're going to have to go back into Titanicus very soon. So we got uh, tons of content. If we could just uh, get episodes out every two weeks, that's on me. Um, but yeah, maybe we could yeah, start covering this stuff regularly. Because <laughs> we, need, we need to get that done quite quickly before new heresy stuff drops. Yeah, this is ridiculous. I, I, I can't keep up. Oh, please, slow the fuck down. It's just too much stuff coming out all the time. I'm getting, Stop I'm it, getting Miles. sick of it. We deserve yeah, it I'm, after I'm, so many years of nothing happening. And yet we never fucking ran out of... Yeah. Oh, you were being sarcastic. I'm sorry. It wasn't clear. I'm touching wood there, yeah. yeah. So yeah, next episode is going to be packed one. I hope you enjoyed uh, this one. This was episode 121. And as usual, uh, thanks everybody for listening.
Peace will rain.